Previously on the Resident Evil podcast. It's an awful term to describe the game, but it's kind of like the bastard child of the series. Guidance does the same sort of stuff to create mood, to create a location and atmosphere. For, and for a Game Boy Color game, it's, it's, uh, it's very good. Fucking hell, this title screen music's banging! Sod it, I'm having it. It's, it, it's part of my canon. And no one, no one can tell you otherwise. Resident games, particularly after become far too easy, far too handheld in, and this is what you want to survive right? Everything in it fits in the storyline, bar the last two seconds. It's a big two seconds, don't get me wrong. <laughs> And welcome to episode 74 of the Resident Evil podcast. Wishing all our listeners a very happy new year and bringing more 90s references than you can download on Napster. I'm Nick, better known as Neptune, criminally overlooked for the reboot. Let's see who's joining us today. He's the reason why Star's nosing about is so inconvenient. It's the Batman. Hello. He's magnificent, isn't he? It's Star's Tyrant. Hello. Don't shoot, he's human. It's Rombie. Hello. And finally, not quite your ordinary house, it's George Trevor. I'm back, Paul W.S. Anderson. All is forgiven. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Coming up on today's podcast, we'll be doing something we have never done before and actually reviewing a live-action Resident Evil movie. Welcome to Raccoon City. We've all seen it. We hope you've all seen it as well. And we're going to go through the release in as much detail as humanly possible. So please brace yourself. And we will be ending with another edition of Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. But before we do all that, we will start with the news. Not a lot of news, actually, to get through. We're going to zip through it. The only thing that's really happened, I think, since the last podcast, apart from Christmas, so Merry Christmas to everyone, was that there was some Welcome to Raccoon City concept art that was released. I'm not sure if everyone's seen it. It was released by AAFX Studio on Instagram. And there's some concept pictures of the spider, a zombie hunter, and a tyrant. All looking quite menacing, I thought. Did everyone uh, have a good glance at that? Yeah, the, the hunter looked excellent. Tyrant still had a bit too much wrinkly face from uh, Remake 2 for my liking, but uh, it still looked imposing enough. And no hat. Well, yeah. <laughs> I thought the hunters looked almost like a cross between the hunter beaters from Remake 3 and look, look at the originals. Had a, a yeah, they're gorilla-like, which is what I like. I, I never was happy with the remake redesign of them, to be honest. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it looked all right. What was the third one again? So there's the spider. The sp- oh, yeah, the spider. The spider's a bit weird. It doesn't it trigger my arachnophobia, so I would have been okay, I think, watching it, watching a movie of that. It was more like a, well, I think they're known as orb spiders, rather than perhaps that the hairy giant spiders you get in the game. I mean, it's hard without going into, obviously, details of uh, the film 
is there any of those images you thought should have been in the movie? Do you think we should have had the hunters? We should have, should we have had the spiders or anything like that? Unfortunately, I wasn't able to see it in the cinema, so I had to kind of watch a naughty version online. But I wasn't aware, I didn't really pick up that Lisa Trevor's faces, which obviously in the games we know were kind of like the stooges, the umbrella researchers sent in to be like stooges for her mother. Almost like baby, they look like baby faces. I would have liked to have seen the hunter in there because we've seen the liquor so many times now. And I must admit, when I first watched the film and you've, you see Bravo Team's Jeep, it's got like some really big claw gouge marks on the bodywork of the Jeep. And I thought, oh, is that a clue that there, there is going to be a hunter? But unfortunately, nothing turned up. But I would have liked to have seen, you know, the art of the hunter lying on the lab. Uh, that would have been cool to see if we could have seen that in Birkin's lab at the end, rather yes. than just another zombie lying on the table. But budget issues, I suppose. But yeah, the art itself looks cool. But how well they would have looked in real time, you know, we don't know. Yeah, I agree. How are you going to feel, Nick, if some more concept art comes out and there's an Pink Neptune. Mm, yeah. Or it would have gone in the movie, to be honest. Well, it would have just added the ridiculousness up a notch, wouldn't it? The suddenly a yeah. giant shark. But it, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to have seen it. It would have been good. I do think the tyrant looked quite cool, as you said, Sean. For me, when I first saw it, I thought it looked exactly like the tyrant from Code Veronica. Yeah, that kind of grey aesthetic. Yeah, that's a good... Yeah, good shout. So it may not all be lost if if the film generates a sequel and they were kind of teasing, I suppose, a Code Veronica sequel if they do one. We may still yet get the tyrant. We'll it see. will be fascinating to see if there's any kind of special features or commentary or anything like that, how COVID affected the shoot was. Whether, like... It was budget cuts or just simply because they, they couldn't put the shoot together. And also, I mean, there's one, one particular show that I was watching really was affected by COVID, uh, the Sci-Fi Foundation. It wasn't necessarily budget issues, but there were many restrictions on how many people you could have on set. So there may have been, you know, there may have been issues to do with that because, uh, you know, battle scenes, for example, that would have been more spectacular had to literally, you know, through, you know, number restrictions had to be scaled down. And obviously that then affects the kind of the impact that, that scene's going to have on the screen. So it could have been that as well. Uh, other things that have kind of happened with Welcome raccoon city there's been a lot of dvd blu-ray 4k placeholders that have come out i think you can you can pre-order some of these on amazon the release date kind of varies wildly i think amazon's currently july 2023 obviously it's not coming out that late so I will expect it this year. Probably March time would be my guess. I was going to say, considering the digital copy went on just before Christmas, I'd be very surprised if it took any longer than March. Yeah. And you can rent it now. It's available um, through various rental facilities, depending on where your country. I know, um, John, you said in the UK, it's at the Sky. You can rent it now. Yeah, it costs you 16 quid. Ooh. How much is a movie ticket there on average? Eight or nine quid. That sounds about standard, though, because you're, you're renting it for a, a potential screen where you can watch it with multiple people. So that's Resident Evil was only a fiver when I went to see it, so very cheap. Very cheap. Is that because it was a cheap day? or I don't know. It's four ninety nine at View Cinema the whole time I was there. Well worth the money. Well worth the money. Site news, first bit of site news. As always, I'd like to thank our Patreon, and we have a new Patreon who's joined us. A big shout-out and thanks to uh, Mr. KDB. You're very most welcome. If anyone interested in Patreon, head over to our website. You should be able to see the link to Patreon on um, at the bottom of the page or under the Community tab. The big update, of course, is that we celebrated our 10th anniversary as a podcast and you should have seen it on the 18th of january with the release of the best bits podcast that is available now on all good podcast apps and websites please download and enjoy there's probably bits everyone has forgotten be definitely a, a, bits we forgot 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It was much longer than I thought it was going to be, just because there were so many good, funny moments um, and some intriguing moments and good discussion points. Got some of the interviews there from Anthony Johnson and Alex and Kat over the years. I thought that'd be quite good just to mix it up with some of the more humorous mess-ups that's happened over the years. So um, I hope everyone's enjoyed it, and um, long may we have another 10 years. People would, may have noticed on our social media that our new encyclopedia has now launched on the website. So if you go to ResidentEvilPodcast.com, you'll see a brand new tab on the menu, and that takes you to the encyclopedia. The encyclopedia is basically everything from John's amazing mythology into a slightly more accessible format. So just to give people a bit of a heads up on that, John's mythology, which is, you know, 3,000 odd pages. Amazing. But we had comments, you know, when it came out that, you know, if people wanted to find a particular profile, particular character or a BOW profile, they'd have to know either that person's date of birth or when that particular monster was created. So if you wanted to find about Nemesis, you'd have to know when the Nemesis parasite was made or whatnot and that was a bit difficult so i had been working on the encyclopedia for about uh, well 12 months now collating that information that john has put into individual web pages so you should now find around 400 pages of bow's from all from right across the series profiles from all the major players in the series the viral agents so the tg virus all, all them organizations and uh, some of the key locations as well in the series. So um, please have a look and check that out. It's all of John's information. There's nothing new in it, apart from a couple of new pages that I added for Village and Infinite Darkness. So some of it does need updating. So some of the legacy characters, such as like Leon and Chris, they need updating in the future to account for their appearances in Village and Infinite Darkness, respectively. But it is a wonderful resource, and you should be able to access it. Um, but it's all still brand new. There's been a few hiccups behind the scenes, so anyone has any comments and feedback, please ping us a message and uh, we'll try and fix it and uh, work continues to try and improve it as much as we can. So but that is available now on our website. Okay, that does finish the news. We now move on to our main discussion of the podcast. Oh, yes. Welcome, everyone, to Raccoon City. Doing that hitchhiking on a night like this, anyway. Oh, yeah. Going to see your brother, you said. Used to live here, you said. Raccoon City. Better you than me. You know, one might have nightmares heading back into that boat town. Nothing left except the raccoon since umbrellas started to leave. You mind? You should tell your brother. Let's get out of there. Let's pack up and leave. Oh, no. What are you going to sell your house to? Nobody, that's a living raccoon. No, thanks. No way. Maybe you want to stay on the Gatlin. Tell him you had to change your heart. Don't put too much emphasis on family anyway. Sometimes you just gotta let it go. Watch out!
welcome to Raccoon City, the rebooted movie series after six Paul W.S. Anderson's films. In the last podcast, myself and Stars Tyrant provided our initial brief impressions, but I'm eager to hear what everyone else has to say now that they've seen it. John, you came with me to London to see it. We were lucky enough and fortuitous enough to have a press screening. Would you mind telling the ladies and gentlemen your experience of the film? Where's your mind at as a kind of brief overview? Um, Well, I went into this having watched all six of the Anderson films pretty much back to back. And it was such a bizarre experience. I can't really describe how it felt to watch those films with Mila Jovovich and all the ridiculous shite that goes on in those films (laughs) to then go straight into this, which is obviously completely different. Um, And when we came out of that screening, Nick, I honestly didn't know what thought to be honest I had to watch it a couple more times before I could really garner a proper opinion and to be honest I think the film feels a bit flat and it's pretty underwhelming overall but I have had some fun with it you know first and foremost I really dig the early John Carpenter uh, aesthetic Roberts is going for you know from the Albertus typeface in the credits to the cinematography and the, and the really effective soundtrack, which I thought was really good. You know, I'm not saying the film is of the same quality as Carpenter's early work. I mean, far from it. But the look and feel is certainly very reminiscent. Um, and it really helped disguise the low budget, which I think adds to its charm. I didn't really mind most of the character changes overall, although I agree they went a bit too far with Leon. I thought each actor played the part well, considering what they were given to work with. The Easter eggs were nice throughout without being too overbearing, and the set design was pretty good. The two main issues I had with the film was the script, which really needed another draft and a heavy polish, and also the lack of tension, which is in part down to you know everyone's familiarity with the source material, because we all know what becomes of the characters, and that's the main failing of any horror film, really. You know, We know exactly who is going to die, and we have a good idea of when they're going to die, so there's, there's next to no tension in the film, which is a big shame. But overall, I had fun with it, and I certainly don't think it's the absolute train wreck that some people in the community have made it out to be. George Trevor, you've watched it recently. I have. What's your take? I mean, I think Estelle Getty just parries everyone in this this film. But other than that, I completely agree with Batman. Nowhere near the train wreck that almost feels... You know, people kind of it's the, it's the trendy thing to do, and I've seen people being very charismatic and very witty in their criticisms of this film. That honestly, I just find completely nonsensical. You know, this kind of almost obsession with they have to be cardboard cutouts of the video game characters. You know, there isn't a Resident Evil fan out there that isn't as passionate and as emotionally engaged in the Spencer Mansion incident, particularly uh, that I am. It, you know, it's, it's the height of the narrative for me across the entire series. So I'm very invested in what I want to see. These characters in the video games, they're not distinguished by their actions in the video games. You have to kind of surmise and imply what sort of a person would be a member of stars and then put that across on the screen and i think this film does that so well i completely disagree with that the portrayal of these characters is any the poorer for that you know there is really i would suggest and i respect people that you know i think many people are going to disagree with this there is very little difference between chris and leon in the video games there is very little difference between jill and claire we're not told anything particularly about their backstories other than what you know it's translated out of japan you know their actions are simply defined by shooting things that are in front of them on the video games you put a cardboard copy of the narrative and the characters of remake onto the screen and i challenge anyone to come up with dialogue that's going to fill more than 10 minutes it's just not going to work so i also completely love the fact that they did 
take the two narratives from the RPD and the Spencer Mansion. You know, again, criticism of people, oh, it's hard enough to put one video game on, on a narrative. You know, what idiot thought of putting two? No, actually, I think it works really well the way that you interchange between the two. Because again, the, the Spencer Mansion narrative, as in the video games, it can't carry more than 20 minutes on the screen. Again, I say try and fill dialogue over a two hour period or an hour and a half. So, yeah, sorry, I'm going on. I'll get to specific <laughs> things. But I enjoyed this film for what it was. It was clearly made by a fan with love for the series. And a lot of that came through in the film. And yeah, I enjoyed it. It did so much more than the, what the Paul Anderson films did. So much more. Interesting comments. Ron B, where's, where's your take? I'm kind of sitting somewhere in the middle. It's, it's one of those things where I, I don't know if it's eating crow or eating humble pie, but I mean, I've been one of those people that's been saying for years, we definitely need something that more skews to the actual franchise. And yet when I saw this version, I don't think it's a perfect take. There's definitely things about it I like, much like John's mentioned, I like the aesthetic of having the Carpenter-esque style to it. I think that kind of fleshed the world, essentially, of the town a lot by having it kind of that run-down aesthetic, but being shot in that particular way, it definitely felt like what they were hoping for. I think the budget really hampered a lot of the ambition for the project. I love the set design, I love the detailing, but and then it comes to like just those things beyond the surface level that really start to kind of feel bogged down. I'm not with what GT said about the combined things. I don't think I agree with the fact that you could make it only 20 minutes version of, of the original game into a movie I think if you write stuff correctly you can flesh it out and I think harshly as it may be pointing out it's like technically Paul W.S. Anderson's first film is that for lack of a better term and it's a whole movie I don't know if I agree with that I think it comes at a disservice to all the characters that you set up a lack of tension through back and forth I kind of agree as well that the cast is exceptional but they're not given a lot to work with which is a bit of a shame given the context of it as well and I think the decisions they did with Leon, I can see why they were done, but I think they were poor choices just for a singular payoff, which falls flat. The movie overall was a bit flat, but I love the ambition. I love the style and it was on the right track for me. On the right track. Interesting. Okay. So I think the first area I think we've all touched upon there is the kind of characterizations. I think that's one of the defining points of this movie. Um, this is the first time we had the big four together in any capacity, as I believe, in any media project. So there's a lot of excitement about having them on screen together. And Leon himself has come under a lot of criticism for mm. his portrayal. I'm going to start with stars because obviously we had our chat in the last podcast. A bit more time has passed. We've had a Christmas, had some alcohol, chilled. <laughs> your view changed in any way in particular to do with the characterizations because i think you're very critical of that as well i'm laughing because you're saying chilled i know sean hasn't had a chilled christmas at all <laughs> if anything nick um i've gone further away oh really okay on the light with it and it's interesting because i was actually thinking about other adaptations of things i like and, I, and obviously naturally i tend to gravitate toward lord of the rings which as a lover of the books i find one of the greatest adaptations of you know, literal material you can have. And I'm led to thinking about the character of Denethor, who is very, very different. And there was a lot of creative choices they made to change that character for the movies. But ultimately, the character itself, whether he's different and the background and the motivations and whatnot are changed, the function he plays within the story is mostly the same. And so in terms of like changing it for a movie adaptation is okay because the role and the function he plays 
to tell the story and the narrative is still as it was in the books. And the problem I've got with how Welcome to Raccoon City does it is not only do they like change some of the characters' personalities, but they also change like their role within the narrative and the story. And and I think that's what contributes to make them unrecognizable to a lot of the fandom. So like Jill, for example, Jill and Claire have almost had this kind of, particularly in the final act, they've had this kind of role reversal where Claire is the sort of driven destroy umbrella character and jill is the character who has to go and sort of caretake sherry for the final stages of the movie and i just think that's strange choices to make narratively it's one thing to sort of say we're going to take some creative liberties with these characters to sort of expand them a little bit and give them a sort of greater depth than perhaps they had in certainly re1 where the characters had no depth you know they were just literally walking 3d models that you know said some lines and told that story as plainly and as as cheesily as it could i don't think i'm on board at all with the way that the characters roles are changed if that makes any sense like i say it's one thing to change their personality and tweak it to make it more like in depth and fleshed out but to actually change their role in what they do in the Lauren's story is, is is like, you know, why did you do that? Why not have the characters stuck to like their archetypes we're used to, if that makes any sense? It's funny because the movie quite often goes for that archetypical shorthand, which is why, you know, some of the critics and some of the people that have been seeing it have said, you know, obviously as a, someone who's watched or played the games is going to be slightly more rewarded by the... Leon's a perfect example. Like, I don't mind the way the character's set up at the start where he's... You know, he is a rookie and he is a bit downbeaten and he's, mm. you know, late for things. There's nothing wrong with that. It, it creates a character concept where you could easily say this this character that feels disconnected is gets pulled into this situation. And that's a really interesting place to start a character. But then he just becomes this consistent, not good character who's like the butt of the jokes and is really not good at his job until the very end when he turns up with a rocket launcher. And it doesn't feel earned. It doesn't it doesn't no. fall flat. It, it, it just doesn't work. I've said this a few times on the Discord. I, I think in order to sort of give Leon that narrative payoff, they've arguably stolen that beat from what really should have been Jill's moment because there's that running commentary about the fact that she's a bit of a, a weapons nut. She, you know, she's a bit unhinged around firearms and they're always joking about, you know, taking the guns off her. That I think it actually would have been a neat moment for her to turn up with a rocket launcher and, and, and basically, the day, be, and then everybody's yeah. like, you know, I tell you what, Jill, you keep the rocket launcher, that, you know, kind of thing. It, yeah. Been a nice yeah. it, it makes sense for her character to, to be the yeah. one that turned up. Whereas the intent of Leon, it's almost like a redemption arc. It's like after him being so useless the whole movie, he's the one that comes up, turns up, save the day, but it just doesn't work. It just, yeah. yeah he could have I, been competent and still have this troubled backstory essentially of basically feeling like he was out of place and you know being the rookie and he could be talked down to people not because he's bad but because they see him as just the rookie and if that was the case then maybe the rocket launcher thing would definitely have paid off but the fact that he's just like clumsy and clunky and not very good at his job doesn't help salvage the problem i think part of the problem as well is the removal of ada i mean I know we don't want to saturate the film with too many characters, but Ada was so pivotal to Leon in mm. the original RE2. You know, you could sense he was growing as a character because he had this overwhelming sense of wanting to yeah. protect her. And obviously we don't get any of that in this film. You know, he, he doesn't even act that way towards Claire. And because Ada's not in it and that whole subplot is gone, I think that's gave Roberts the excuse to go really radical with his character and essentially reinvent mm. him in a way that just hasn't worked, unfortunately. Yeah, I was going to say, it's exactly what 
Sean had said before about the whole thing with Jill and Claire and Sherry, kind of. It's like Sherry is an almost non-existent, non-important character other than the fact she's there. But it, it's that same thing that in the original narrative, you had Leon with Ada and Claire with Sherry, and there was a justification towards these things. And when you start stripping those things away, you start taking away those beats that inform you of what those characters are that aren't cliches, you know, like that aren't obvious things. And so when you take those bits out of the movie, you have to fill those in with other things and the versions that he's chosen they're choices but they don't feel true to the characters exactly as Sean was saying before let's make no mistake about like Leon in in the original RE2 like you know there is a reason why we sort of belovedly quote Paul Haddad's performance and everything like that because you know it, it's I- iconic in terms of just like how much of a like, like a lovable dork he is particularly around the women and you know he's got this real sense of nobility about wanting to, to protect everybody and he's always musing about the fact that no one listens to him and, it, and and that almost runs as a gag through like his scenario is the fact that no one listens to him but they give him like this real virtuous streak that he just carries on anyway and ultimately becomes, you know, a bit of a hero as a result of it at the end. And the movie just doesn't seem to be interested in exploring that because he doesn't have those interactions with the characters that matter. He just gets gags with Bertolucci and it just doesn't work. I think the problem Robert's had with Leon is, for me, is the success that he had with Jill. I know that Jill obviously is criminally underused in the film, but again, going back to my point, not all may agree that most of the actions that define the characters in the video games is, is simply just shooting things that are in front of them so he's taken, you know, the facts on the paper. These people are, have joined this organization. We know very little much else about them. And it's kind of surmised from that and built upon what sort of a person would do that. So I, I love what we get with Jill. Like you say, she's kind of just not, not untinged, maybe just kind of slightly overly interested in guns and almost comes across for me, anyone that's watched the reinvention of Battlestar Galactica and they sort of um, went with a, a female actor to play the, the Starbuck character and I kind of like that that's sort of reminding me of that with Jill and that's exactly the sort of person that you would find being successful in that role whereas with Leon again he's taken the fact that Leon is a rookie and I love the fact that you know that was reflected in the film but he almost became a parody of that and an exaggeration of that and I think you know John and you mm. guys that have mentioned this is absolutely right taking away the Ada narrative and that focus for Leon to grow as a character and, and to kind of work off of Ada and actually to show the virtuous side of him and the usefulness side of him you know you strip that down and you're just left with the rookie and I think it's a shame that he kind of took his sort of foot off the ball there Roberts and lost the focus and I think went far too hard on that rookie element almost I imagine that thinking was we're going to have to have some kind of comedic element in this there is kind of a camp Mm. that's too Resident Evil that's what distinguishes it from the real pure survival horror of of, say for example Silent Hill and it's too much subtly it would have worked like you say it would reflect back to in the video games when he exasperates you know why does no one ever listen to me but that's just the thing GCO I think it would have made a great scene if there was like a situation where for once you know Leon is actually saying something that made common sense and nobody was listening to him just like the game and it would have been funny like that inherently would have had laughs built into it the thing is as well I 100% agree that there's this concept of like almost like he's the he's the comic fodder character we need somewhere but there are movies where you don't necessarily need one character to do that everyone has their moments and um, this is definitely an opportunity with the number of people in the cast I don't know if I agree with I mean I, I don't not disagree with your statement about Jill like for example then the the original Resident Evil 1 yeah she is basically the female character she has very little backstory we know she's young we know she has 
weapons training and weapons experience and that's basically it but i feel like the later sequel started to flesh that idea out you know there is more of a, a virtuous character underneath who has you know ambitions about what is correct and who is wrong and and these things that start to come through and and it is one of those things where i think the movie does her right for fleshing out her character and making her a, a quirkier character because of that than say leon who does have reasonably established morals but as the guys have alluded to those when you take away those concepts of what showed those morals you kind of erode the character for lack of a better term and if you don't replace it with something substantial like we were saying with jill it kind of yeah it becomes flatter and harder to kind of deal with i think for me with leon i just think roberts was a bit too obvious if you know what i mean with it it was like here's leon he's late for work he's struggling to get into town you're then told he shot someone in the bum okay he then walks in on a meeting he shouldn't be in he then you know puts his headphones on and falls yeah, asleep in the much. front desk he then can't cock a shotgun properly and, and it's like okay i get yeah, it yeah but he's a rookie yeah. <laughs> he's a rocky and yeah he keeps making mistakes and this is what i mean about why the end doesn't pay off because yeah Turning up with a rocket launcher to save the day after being that bumbling doesn't really pay off. Like, if it was one or two things, you'd be like, okay, cool. But he's just constantly, he's like the Mr. Magoo of Resident Evil. (laughs) I honestly expected him to be holding that rocket launcher the wrong way around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Take them all out. Yo. Yeah, exactly. It's like oh, that the so good. But... It was kind of stupid what he did. It was, you know, it was kind of like the, a Steve Burnside moment when he shoots his dad and manages to miss Claire. I was wondering how, you know, I mean, Chris literally gives him a look like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, overkill, you know, and yeah, no friends Buying a rocket launcher and... in a closed train. <laughs> it, it did actually make me laugh when Chris looked at him at the end and he was like, trust me, I'm as surprised as you are, buddy. You know, when Chris realises he's still alive. That actually did make me laugh but then that shouldn't make you laugh given that we know the type of character Leon matures into into the games I mean it's all well and good putting your own spin on the character you know fair enough change his backstory so you know he's related to some big shot in the police which you know would give a reason why the other characters might resent him a little bit but you've got to you know there's got to be something there that would put him on the path to him becoming this this government agent that we all know and there's just none of that in this film and I'm particularly surprised about that considering Kobayashi who is you know leon's number one fan in the world is still a creative consultant on this film yes absolutely yeah it was it was notable wasn't it because i remember when you know the beginning where we get the kind of leon being late for work i was like yes that's a nice reference you know and you know that's a nice link and it starts off quite well do you not remember that translated file where we read that story about how leon shot someone in the ass with I, a gun i think i missed that one <laughs> it was off. <laughs> that's how they're friends ark didn't shoot him leon did but ark covered it up for him he took the blame absolutely absolutely <laughs> <laughs> we'll go through the characters because they're all very interesting i think in some ways so we talked about jill as well in the kind of lead up and the marketing to this jill was barely seen i think we all patiently waited for her little twitter video speaking myself I thought Hannah did a really good job as Jill. I actually yeah. felt she embellished Jill quite well. Bear in mind, we've just come off the back of Nicole Tompkins' very good performance as Jill, but again, a very different take to the Jill we'd known before. But I felt it almost complemented Nicole Tompkins' performance. All I just want to say about this is you've got to detach a lot of emotion, I feel, from the video game because, yeah. you know, my first Jill was Jill Valentine in Remake. And I've just fell in love with Heidi's voice and just that haunting, almost reassuring. And it kind of almost, you would say on the screen and in real life, it wouldn't actually match at all. But 
it works in the video game. So in a way, I didn't want to see, I wouldn't have found it plausible to have had a Jill with those tones, with that demeanor. So I, yeah, again, the, the female mm. character in Battlestar, Starbuck, I, I really felt they were channeling that kind of sort of gun-toting, cigarette-smoking badass. And I think that's exactly the Jill Valentine that you would have, you know, to work realistically, contextually in the real world. And I, so I, I loved it. I thought she did a fantastic job portraying that. And such a shame she didn't get more screen time to do that. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, all the way up to release, I was, I was actually begging them to sort of do something different with the character because you know you play to Hannah's strengths and as anyone who's listened to the last podcast I'm quite a fan of Hannah I think she's great in the stuff I've seen her in and I don't even feel there's a performance to critique here because it's so minimal and it's just a whole load of nothing and, and like you know my heart breaks for Hannah I mean how some of these actors must look back on the movie because it just feels like such a hollow experience you know these characters are like beyond paper thin like at times they are just literally reading lines of a script to propel what little story a narrative there is yeah and this and, and is why Hannah, Hannah gets the rawest deal out of everybody to be honest she I, really does I would agree with that and that's kind of reason why when you know and this is not sliding it's GT but it's like when he's saying you know oh well you know narrative of a game you know 20 minutes I'm like well you know combining these two movies has not done service to the characters it hasn't no, done service I, to the stories yeah yeah Whereas, you know, you have this opportunity to flesh these characters out, flesh the dialogue out by not putting too much in there. What actually could he have done to have fleshed the character out more other than that? Because do you think perhaps there was an over-reliance on thinking, well, you know, these are beloved characters to the fans from the video games and kind of they've already got that foundation. And so... No, I just think think the characters needed arcs. I think they needed Mm -hmm. to to go through a journey. And I I thought that was the whole point in, like, establishing Jill as this kind of gun-crazed slightly carefree um, character that I thought was going to rise to the occasion as the narrative went on and by the end she was going to be the heroic Jill that we know from the game. It seems like she's going to find herself and like with Wesker, I thought the whole point of like making him, and I say in inverted commas with my fingers in the air, likable, was that when his betrayal kicks in, there's like emotional devastation from like, you know, Jill and the team, because mm. he has been established as someone who gets on with his teammates like that, but the movie doesn't even explore that. He's just, Wesker's just a bit of a shit. To me, the perfect structure of this movie is that you have a narrative set up, which is very similar to the movie, which is that you have the team, they're hanging out at the office, kind of that sort of stuff. You can establish characters that exist in this world. You could have had someone come as Leon, who's the rookie, not necessarily so bumbling, but who's there, accidentally walks in on this meeting, this sort of stuff, and gets sent. There's a Bravo team that has been sent. We haven't seen them much, like you've barely seen them as you have in the movie. They get sent, and they spend more time exploring the mansion. There's less scenes like Chris stumbling around in the dark with a lighter surrounded by zombies, which was just not particularly very good you know it wasn't a great scene more mansion exploring more dynamic and then you could bring more of those characters that are part of that in and you can create this world where the sequel is the second game that wraps around this movie like you could have had instead of putting these two things together you could have had a movie and a potential sequel where you've seen that character of leon turn up you know claire's and chris are brother sister they've turned up and then the second movie focused more on them and it would be like having that twist of a video game that wraps around another game but nobody thought this everyone thought you know let's put these two things together see what a great thing would have been they could have like played like a blind of revelations 2 thing is that you have claire and leon turn up at the city they then conduct their investigations and they they uncover some things and then you also see like the mansion incident which you believe is a flashback and then during like the end of the mansion incident they board a train and you're thinking this is in the past 
you know, like months ago or whatever. And then as it arrives to like the station where Leon and Claire are, like you realize, fuck, this happening at the same time. What a genius twist. Mm. You know, that, that kind of thing. It also could have been a really good way of doing it. Yeah. The thing genius. I liked about Wesker, but again, going back to Sean's point, they could have explored this further and given kind of a more sort of emotional impact at the end was because at first it jarred at me when I see him in the cafe scene and he's almost quite passive and people are taking the piss out of him. And then he enters the Spencer mansion. I'm thinking, why is Chris directing this? And then I kind of thought, ah, oh, this is perhaps why he was targeted, you know, as the one to be the betrayer. You know, he was the weak link. Uh, he, he was the weakness of character. And he even says, you know, you, you get Chris who's very attached to Raccoon City and, and feels he, you know, he owes it a life debt almost and Birkin as well. Whereas, you know, uh, Wesker refers to you know, as a, a dead end city. Why would I want to, you know, it's just a way out, out of this shithole, he says. That was great. And actually, I enjoyed that more than perhaps a mustache twirling enemy type Wesker. But they should have developed that further. I've got to ask GT, what did you think to the um, SD Perry PDA in his locker? Years ago, when I took this series far too seriously, I was kind of very protective of it. And I sneered at the SD Perry novels as kind of being unofficial. And I was all the poorer for it because they, they are very good. Yeah, and they've kind of used a couple of things, haven't they? They've taken from the books, I think, in later games. So I didn't have a problem with it. I just was reminded of a point. You asked me earlier, like, you know, what like I could have done to help like Jill's character. And I find it interesting, like, you've kind of described the fact that the mansion can't really be told outside of a 20-minute sort of window. And yet, you also mentioned Heidi's performance. And Heidi's performance is limited to the sort of handful of cutscenes we get. And I would say Heidi's performance in Remake is like one of the series best i think she really fleshes out jill in that game and it was only on a recent replay that i actually realized how much depth that jill actually has she's kind of very sort of quirky and funny the scenes like where she makes barry jump where you see like a real sort of soft side to her that's really likable and like you know you, you want to know kind of what they could have done with hannah you, you've got an expanded sort of jill performance in the remake it's there now i know hannah's performance is always going to be a little bit more crazy and a little bit more slightly off what they would established the sort of safe hidey route but you know i agree that jill was criminally underused but i thought she had a couple of really nice scenes that were like classic Jill Valentine you know I thought it was quite nice in the diner scene how everybody was just willing to take the piss out of Leon but then Jill was the one who at the end stopped and said you know look don't worry about it we're only messing around I thought that was quite nice and likewise when she saves Chris in the dining room and she has a little action moment and they have that you know that little embrace I thought that was nice that was it felt like that that was the beginning of Chris and Jill's platonic relationship and I know I'll get criticism for this but I actually enjoyed the sort of love triangle between Chris Wesker and Jill you know we weren't oversaturated by it It was just a question of Jill had a crush on Wesker which you know seemed perfectly realistic to me that would happen in most workplaces I suppose and I thought that was a really nice they didn't push it too far it wasn't a complete betrayal of the characters it was just Jill had a crush on Wesker you know I thought that was nice I thought Hannah was really good when she she was obviously struggling with Wesker's betrayal and when she shot him at the end you know I know there's not a lot of characterization in this film but one of the best scenes for me is is the main hall mansion scene because I know we'll talk about Wesker in a minute and how he's really really sympathetic in this and not really that much of a bad guy really but Wesker says let's split up and it's a blink it and you'll miss it moment he's wanting to go off on his own and it's when Chris says we'll go in pairs Wesker he has this look on his face as if to say why the fuck have you said that because he wanted to go off on his own because I think in that particular moment he was really struggling with the prospect of betraying his own team and leaving them all to die, which of course is in complete contrast to how he's portrayed in the games, but I thought it was a nice twist on his character to make him seem more human while still essentially keeping him on the same arc as the games. 
And then oh. Jill says, oh, no, I'll go with you. And then he sort of raises his eyebrows a bit because he knows, you know, Jill will go off his every word. And then you've got Chris has a pissed off look on his face because obviously he's stuck with Richard because Jill wants to go with Wesker. And all that happens in the space of 10 seconds and there's not much dialogue, but there's so much going on there. You know, yeah. that was a really strong piece of characterization, I think. But just watch the look on Tom Hopper's face when Chris says, oh, we'll go in pairs. Yeah, I've not seen that. I, I sort of picked up on that kind of angry Chris go, oh, no, no, no. Uh, and then Jill wanting to quickly go off with Wesker, but I'll, I'll have to watch that next time. That's interesting. Look at kind of the Wesker side of things. Then He was possibly one of the biggest departures from the character. And they, they made a point, didn't they, in the marketing to say, uh, this is almost like an origin story of Wesker as to how he became the moustache twirling villain <laughs> that we all know from the future games. I thought it was handled quite well and yes. I thought Tom Hopper did a good job. It is hard, isn't it? Because you, you know, you're, I'd, I'd love to ask him what games did he play or what films did he watch because there's so many takes on Wesker that they vary as well. You know, RE1 Wesker's a bit different to RE4 and RE5 and then you've got the Paul Anderson Weskers who's, you know, gets killed by a door and god knows what and you know there's, there's all sorts of source material he could use and with the voice actors as well but he was approaching it from a very rarely seen angle so from what it was i thought it was perfectly fine what i liked about this film is the few changes that they did do i think worked so well and i think wesker's a really good example of that i think lisa trevor's another one because with wesker far more interesting than him being a total ass from the very beginning i think you're absolutely right from an origin story point of view far more interesting to kind of see like an Anakin story uh you know we didn't see him as a little boy yet, but um from a point of good and obviously through weakness of character you know he didn't want to take over the world from the beginning he just wanted to get out of a shit dead-end job in a, a shitty city so yeah I, it's a shame it's kind of you could see that his heart was in the right place Roberts with this and perhaps the execution you know didn't quite live up to the actual the idea but yeah an origin story starting from a, a Wesker that wasn't you know looking to take over the world was great and I I enjoyed that you can argue Wesker wasn't that even in games there originally. I mean, I almost missed that sort of that almost devoid of humanity Wesker that narrates Wesker's report too. It's definitely a different springboard to start your character from. I'm not really sure what Roberts was going for, to be honest. I sort of agree with George in the sense that making him more human and more likable was more interesting to me than just having him being a complete ass with everybody from the from the beginning. But the problem is, it was a bit like Leon. They went a bit too far. You know, they tried to make him too human, too sympathetic. So when he ultimately does betray the team, it, it doesn't really work. You know, he's like, I just want to get out of this dead-end town. This organisation offered me money. Well, is that really enough incentive to just let your entire team die, leave them behind and get blown up? And the problem is, we all have certain expectations of these characters like I don't think anyone was surprised when we had a post credit scene of, of Wesker coming back from the dead and putting his sunglasses on because that's what we expect to happen but in the context of what Roberts has done with the character and his portrayal of the character it doesn't really work for what benefit has the rival company got of bringing Wesker back from the dead in this because he's not an umbrella agent you know he's just a cop who got seduced by the lure of some extra money what's in it for the rival company to go through the mansion ruins drag his body out and resurrect him there's no reason yeah. for that to happen in this film adaptation of him in the game it makes sense because of his history his motivations are more in line with Nikolai's in remake 3 and things like that aren't they it's... yeah but Roberts is just oh we need to bring Wesker back from the dead because that's what's supposed to happen but it, it just doesn't work with the way he's written the character the only angle I could potentially see, 
um, and we'll talk about this as well, was the way he did the T-virus was interesting and it almost suggested that everyone was infected to an extent. You know, all the cops were going to kind of give an inoculations and whatnot, but there was a, a slow poisoning, if you like, of the town. So they could go down that angle and say, well, he's got T-virus antibodies in him and we've combined it with whatever the rival organisation's got and that's made him super strength or something like that. Oh, but that's that's very, very contrived. And, and the whole thing with that, the cops have been given some sort of secret medication. I mean, yes, it was nice that they tried to explain it, but it still doesn't make sense because at the end of the day, Umbrella was still going to leave everyone in that town to die. What was the I, point I, of vaccinating get, the cops? Yeah, that's the bit that I was about to say. I was like, I get the idea of drawing this parallel. Like, I like the core concept. They're drawing this parallel. Because someone said to me, why was Umbrella leaving? Why was it such a shitty town? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's drawing a real world comparison to the chemical companies of like the 60s yeah. and 70s in America that poisoned the local communities, poisoned the ground, and then took off to their headquarters out of the city and eventually moved their processing to another town and did the same thing all over again. So there's definitely a great parallel there i get the idea of it but yeah the core concept of like oh yeah but the cops got these inoculations because for some reason i just assumed it was part of irons because irons clearly knew something was going on he wasn't clueless yeah because he's trying to what leave as soon as he knows there's something yeah so i I assumed it was part of the deal yeah i'll turn the blind eye but make sure my cops are you know screenwriters tell me what the entire point of irons leaving the station to get stopped and just go straight back in in a movie that's already struggling for runtime what the fuck i actually thought that was to sort of show that he didn't really know what was going on i thought it was very ambiguous whether he knew what was happening or not because he sort of says doesn't he what the fuck are all those alarms about and surely if he knew what was going to happen he would have left all already but then again he seems to know about the secret passage in the orphanage so he obviously knows something but Mm. it was quite ambiguous i couldn't really tell if he was bad guy irons or if he was just a normal cop wanting to get the hell out of there i think he knew enough i was gonna say is that implied that it's hunky sees in the street he's putting down some people isn't he the gas masked umbrella operative Oh, God, yeah. I have an affinity for low-budget gems, but certain elements of this film took it to a new level. I mean, in Resident Evil Apocalypse, we have this huge scene on the bridge with thousands of extras as Umbrella lock the city down, and in this, we have two blokes in a hunk cosplay, a few guys in a car, and some smoke effects. (laughs) I mean, this is the thing. The thing I don't get about this is that if you've got a franchise... Like, I've I've said to people why they're making this again. It's like, well, because, obviously, the franchise prior to this made, you know, a billion dollars, over a billion dollars at the box office it probably sold billions more in home video sales so of course you'd want to make more of it that's the reason why constantine and is making more of these why they're making netflix series for all this sort of stuff but then why you would go right we're going to give this a budget of and it's depending on who you ask us between 25 and 40 million dollars but it doesn't look like 25 to 40 million dollars and the thing is while anderson's film in 2002 cost 33 million dollars he also shot it with a lot of existing locations barely dressed for a large amount of the underground stuff whereas this obviously you spend a lot of time actually dressing up locations in canada so that's where their money went but if i was constantine i'd be like well clearly 33 million dollars from 2002 isn't 33 million dollars in 2020 no, less. you know when the, when this was filmed getting planned to be filmed you know you would go well, this is probably more like a 45 million dollar budget to really do it justice yeah but they still gave it if we assume it was a low ball in 25 million it definitely looks like a 25 million dollar film that's struggling to really do its best with the budget yeah 
Um, other characters we'll quickly go through. Let's start with Claire Redfield, obviously the star of the show. Certainly, I would say the main character. Sean's already touched upon a bit of a, a switcheroo with Jill. I agree. I felt that whilst there was some elements of what we knew as Claire in the role, and I think Kai did, again, a, a perfectly decent job. I think she played Jill, or more classic Jill, more so than perhaps Claire, uh, as I said, certainly towards the end. But again, I appreciated the link to the orphanage. I really did. I thought that was a really clever idea. And her escaping, if you like, from some raccoon and kind of coming back, almost being indoctrinated somewhat by old Ben Bertolucci and, the, you know, the conspiracy theorists and then wanting to help Chris. She had a very unique relationship with Chris. It was a kind of like a, it felt brother-sisterly in a kind of like, I do care, but I don't care, kind of like, you know, that's how a lot of brothers and sisters are, I suppose. So I think, Kai, again, it's all very fine by the numbers. I, th- I think she did a good job, ha- again, hampered by the scripts. She had a lot of good moments, but I think she played more of a Jill than a Claire overall. Yeah, I can see where you're going with that. I thought for the most part she was fine. She maybe portrayed Claire as Claire is a bit later on in the series rather than when we first see her in the original Resident Evil 2. She comes across well in the sense that she knows how to look after herself and we had all the Claire tick boxes if you like with the red jacket and the motorbike and things like that but yeah I, I agree about you know her and Jill sort of switching roles at the end. To me the fact that they didn't give her a ponytail ruined the entire character <laughs> <laughs> makes the film borderline unwatchable obviously obviously yeah. even though anyone who knows the fucking games will know the fucking results screen in re2 she doesn't have a ponytail no, she does not <gasps> find better things to criticize your uh, material with people seriously you're yes. really reaching when you're tearing apart a, an adaptation's hairstyle and i think that goes back to what you were mentioning earlier sean about how you know you're comparing you know the situation to lord of the rings you know changing it but keeping it relatively true to the kind of overall story like having claire and chris as orphans within raccoon city it's a change but it works for the purposes of the story it builds up chris to have that affiliation towards birkin and raccoon city generally i didn't mind the fact that they were orphans at the city at the orphanage I just didn't like the sort of weird, almost fatherly angle they were going for with Birkin and Chris. I just didn't think that worked at all. And and it has that thing that I absolutely hate that a lot of things do. And we saw it in Spectre with Blofeld and James Bond. We saw it in the, uh, the Michael Bay Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where the turtles are actually experiments of like Shredder's company or whatever. They were pets. Went. Yeah, they were someone's pets. There's a connection. Yeah, the, the unnecessary connection, like, the, you know, the Blofeld Bond half-brothers thing. It just it, and, and I felt there was a little bit of this in, well, there was a lot of this in that, by having sort of Birkin and the Redfields as a sort of pre-established connection before all this kicks off. I just, I just felt feel it's a stretch and it, make, it makes your narrative universe feel tiny that's the problem it, it, yeah I mean I thought that was maybe know. one of the reasons why he was doing it Sean was to you know to connect these characters but then that's the downside I just wanted to quickly say though I didn't have an issue with them being I had to actually pause the movie to kind of for my brain to kind of catch up and I didn't have an initial problem with that but you were mentioning about the, the role swaps with Jill and Claire at the end and what I found was odd was the fact that am I right to think that initially in the games there was kind of that fatherly figure between Chris and Wesker and they seem to have taken that away in this film and kind of imbued that, you know, into a relationship between Chris and Birkin, which, again, odd when, you know, in the games we had the fact, I think that was, you know, that was the relationship that kind of, that was made the betrayal even worse. I think Chris almost looked up to Wesker. Yeah. Almost sort of finally thing. I would have said probably bigger brother, if anything. Before going to Birkin then, so, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of criticism of Robbie's performance as Chris. I think out of everyone. Yeah. 
most people have been very accepting. Again, Chris's casting, the acting, the you know the look, even the script to an extent, it was very much on point. He seems to have escaped most of uh, the kind of like you know general criticism towards the film. So yeah, yeah, I think he's been fairly endearing in the interviews and whatnot as well. And he's the only actor post release who's actually tweeted anything about the movie, and that was to say how proud he was to play the character, and he would love the opportunity to do it again. What do everyone think of Birkin? I will say I want his T-shirt. I love that tall Oaks T-shirt and I need it. I didn't really have a problem. I yeah. thought the actor was competent and did well with what he had. I would be interested what other people think, gamers, maybe particularly female gamers, in the way that they took, you know, Annette Birkin, who was clearly William's equal professionally, whereas in this she's obviously portrayed as the kind of the, you know, the unknowing wife. But then again, I felt that perhaps whilst that's taking away a strong female lead, it kind of gave that extra sense of betrayal that he'd betrayed his family his wife and his daughter mm. who had no idea of what he was doing and I think that worked well on screen I think it would have been maybe more problematic to have had the Sherry character and then to have both the parents as career parents I don't know how that would have worked so Birkin his real scene is how believable is it going to be when I, you know, I'm not handing over my life's research and I felt it was almost had that slightly restrained as compared to what, how that may have played out and I liked that I thought it was good Neil McDonough is a hilarious actor because he can range from being you know, almost dramatically effective to laugh out loud terrible um but what i will say he's now collected two capcom villains because he famously played m bison in the legend of chun Li movie there yeah. we go there we go i actually thought the i mean if we, we flick to the code veronica video i thought he played the menacing kind of like very eerie scientist role very well the way he kind of you know would walk into the orphanage and you know talk quite calmly to the children i thought that was very unnerving i was gonna say nick you brought that up in a very weird way because i thought it was weird in that video the, the not the, the orphanage stuff yeah definitely but the video was weird he's just standing there with yeah. a checkboard just standing there just creepily hanging out <laughs> his smile is ear to ear rob yeah, it's just so weird why is he smiling like why is he just we've not never just seen taking the notes like We've never seen no, it was very, like that. Really. It was very weird. We've always yeah. seen him as a kind of very flustered individual. I agree with you what you also said, George, with Annette. I think if they had added Annette as being another powerful kind of like person, I think it would have been even too much egos on screen. What they could have done is got rid of Sherry. Not that, you know, she wasn't bad or anything like that. And blimey, she's going to be traumatised the rest of her life after what she saw in the lab. But she was so unnecessary to the actual yeah, story. Yeah, because I didn't... You're right. I mean, what would be the point of having this character? Because they gave her very little. It's it seemed like almost not even direction in terms of how emotionally traumatised and shocked she's going to be at the death of her parents, you know. But no, I, I put that very much down, not to the actor, but to the direction and what she had been told on the set. It almost seemed like she was completely just, oh, well, there's this child. It's, and nothing more than that. It was it was very sidelined, which is a shame because we know how prominent she is in the games, particularly in terms, like you said before, Stars, you know, defining that relationship with Claire. I will say his G1 mutation was actually pretty well done for the budget. I thought, it, yeah. thought it looked quite effective. The only thing that is, he just falls into the typical modern movie villain trap. That is, he gets his hand on one of the heroes and then just throws them across the room. Of course. Standard, standard. But the actual CGI of like the eyeballs sort of sprouting and popping and there's like yeah. blood all running out of them. Like, it looked actually really pretty good for low-budget CGI. Less could be probably said of his later mutations, but certainly the one where it's half Neil's performance, half CGI creation, it's actually one of the better-looking special effects in the movie. I assume some of it was probably practical, blended with CGI, which is why it's probably extremely effective. Talking of child actors, I actually want to give a bit of a shout-out to the, the actress that played 
young Claire. I thought she was really good. I thought she she was very convincing in her role. Child actors are always hard, aren't they? They haven't got the experience as you know adult actors as you can appreciate, and so being able to get across that without being too overly acting, I suppose is the term I'm looking for. Um, I I thought. She was she was very good. Talking about protagonists, and I think I don't know if you guys would agree. I almost do uh, what Roberts did, and uh, with the character a disservice if we lumped Lisa Trevor in with the antagonist. So again, another change from the narrative. But is it a change from the narrative that I really enjoyed? Was the fact, you know Lisa Trevor, as we know, is a victim uh, in the game. You know, the, the, again, there's that kind of moment when she knocks Chris and Jill out, and you know doesn't kill them. I really enjoyed what they did with Lisa. The fact that she helped Claire. I can really, for me, emphasize the fact that she was an innocent victim. That there was no evil intent with her at the beginning. And and yeah, I can't make up my mind what I think about that scene with the liquor. Uh, again, was it taking it again a good idea and just ridiculously taking it to the extreme? But just that idea that you could emphasise even more so with her as a victim. I really loved what they did with Lisa Trevor. Batman? Um, I didn't mind Lisa. I thought she looked fine. I just I didn't really see what the point of her was in this film. It's like she didn't really have a role to play. It was literally just the clears. Yeah benefit for her character now. Yeah. I think my issue is because it's such a condensed runtime and that opening prologue lasts about eight minutes and I, I think they wasted too much runtime on the whole orphanage flashback and there was no real payoff to Lisa because unless you've played the games, I know most people will have played the games obviously, but you know there's, there's no explanation behind her at all. Like, someone who's not familiar with the games who watched this film will have no idea of Lisa's backstory or anything and they'll just think, well, who was that weird hunchbacked girl? Even at the end, Claire just leaves her. She's like, I reckon City's going to die but cheers for this key see you later it just smacked to me that Roberts clearly has an affinity for Lisa Trevor she's clearly one of his favourite characters and he's like right I'm going to put her in there any way I can and she just wasn't developed enough for me yeah I mean I think there's again that idea just kind of shoehorning iconic characters or moments from the games that resonated with Roberts and that he'll think you know resonates with so many of us and just kind of sticking him in the film without thinking of the kind of the further narrative and how that's going to affect it and as great as it was to see the Ashfords I kind of got that with them because you actually look at the video footage and he's not actually experimenting on them you get he's just standing oddly and it's not like it's you know he's experimenting on, on children they you just it's basically I mean you know from what I gathered the Ashfords were, were pulling apart had dragonfly not because they were kind of being experimented on that was just you know how sick and psychotic they were so, yeah, the, the, again, there was a lot of that, wasn't there? Kind of shoehorning in iconic moments without thinking of the greater narrative. I will say the opening Lisa sequence, you know, the flashback with young Claire, um, was one of the sort of stronger pieces of Roberts's repertoire in terms of director. I thought it was quite an effective, you know, early sequence that the rest of the film didn't live up to. I'm really unsure on him as a director, in all honesty. I was going to say, I felt the same with the following scene where, you know, Clear's arriving in town with the truck driver and all that. I thought that was good. Like, it was this great setup for, like, the first 12 minutes or 15 minutes or so, and the intro to Raccoon City was fine, and then it just kind of meandered off. The extended shots of the city at the beginning with the rain I thought were brilliant. You know, really, mm. really sort of well done. But then we have, you know, strobe light, zombie machine gun sequences, and it's like we've, we've gone straight back to... W.S. Anderson almost instantly. It's well, the opposite so... antithesis is, is the scene with Chris and the lighter, which is just a lot of blackness and it doesn't really have any tension involved and it's kind of an awkward non-action action scene. It wasn't particularly great either. Like, yeah, I found that seemed very peculiar because at the time I was thinking, was there a zombie approaching him and kind of, you know, the point? It of waited. Like, it waited for the light. So it, <laughs> it was like, the dark stop. 
Pause. Yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was very much like that, like green light, red light. I didn't quite understand. It made no sense yeah. at all. And then there's like more just... zombies. Then somehow he gets out of there without getting bitten by yeah. one of them. He's got no weapon, and he's clearly surrounded, lying on the floor. Like it was. Yeah, it is like... I think that kind of sums up our kind of characterization. We had a good discussion on that. I want to move on to the BOWs that appear in the movie. Sadly, it's not, there's not that many, but we'll go through them in kind of order. The zombies. So what was interesting about the zombies here, which of course should always be a key component of any Resident Evil movie, is for me there were two clear distinctive zombie types. You had the more traditional zombies of the mansion, which were slow, lumbering, you know, very much undead. Whereas you had the sickened human zombies of Raccoon City. And I really like what they did yes. with, with the city zombies. It was almost like they decided to take the itchy, tasty experience, you know, of what the Keeper went through in the Itchy Tasty Diary and just prolong it to all residents of Raccoon City. So all of them were kind of going through this, ah, I'm, I'm slowly metamorphosizing into the undead. I can still kind of talk, it's the Brad stage, Brad Vickers stage from Remake 3. And I really liked it because like when they're all up at the gates, some were fully turned, some were still human and still going, help, or something like that. Oh, yeah. And they just had no idea what was going on. And I just thought it was a really, really interesting take on zombies and that kind of, as I said, that dying town situation that we all kind of touched upon. So I really like the distinction between the two. And I thought it worked very well. I completely agree. You know, I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a zombie genre before that isn't just instantaneous, you know, human, dead, zombie. Uh, I'm surprised it hasn't been done before, so I'm sure it has been. But I thought it was fantastic. Uh, uh, and you really got empathy for the fact that they were so confused in i mean i think that woman was screaming well, you know what's happening to me when she was clawing mm. at her skin and yeah i thought it was absolutely great you're right they take the itchy tasty experience and you just see it from the point of view of a city slowly dying and the confusion as well i just thought that was absolutely wonderful shout out to a maternal loving claire for just fucking off and leaving the kid under the table though I was just going to say the thing about it for me is there is a little bit of convenience that something that's been slowly eking out supposedly is all culminated on one particular night there's a little bit of over convenience on that and while I do appreciate I definitely like much what you've just said about the the style like clearly there's also that real world parallel they've gone oh have you seen those things about people getting poisoned by you know ground fracking and like their hairs falling out and stuff like that so i like that then the again the chemical thing i was talking about earlier like i I get the basis of where this is going i think it's a cool idea and how like it's contaminating the people having raccoon city as that dying town that's been all but abandoned was a nice idea you know Mm. I, i get what you're saying rob with the real world parallels i really appreciated that angle and it was refreshingly different to you know the stupidly big city of Resident Evil Apocalypse and, you know, Remake 2 with yep. all its skyscrapers. But then it, it, it's kind of comedic. I mean, that opening shot in the rain that Sean mentioned, yeah, it's a really effective shot. But you just see how stupidly big the police station is compared to everything else in the town. Um, it, yeah, it'd be interesting to know if there was a backstory like there is in the games. Like this is an art centre or this is whatever it was. Yeah, it's still the same, but it is massive. <laughs> I don't know what it says about working within like the company, but I'm sure it says something at the beginning that basically 
everyone that really mattered with an umbrella, anyone with any talent has, has long since left. Has pretty much left. Basically, yeah. umbrella's janitor and, you know, the nightwork staff have just been left. As, I think it's a skeleton staff, it says. And Birkin's been left there. I mean, one of their chief researchers. So that kind of... Didn't I get the feeling he chose not to leave because he wanted to finish his research. Okay. But that it's not inferred directly. It just seems that way based on what he's working on. It's something like a skeleton crew or something, isn't it? Of last few employees. Where the hell was the, um, the large European city with the Massive um, citadel that was used in one of the trailers. Oh yeah, that was really random. That yeah. I can't understand why people thought that was the same town. Given we got that exact same shot in the trailer of all of Raccoon City with the Arkley Mountains and the police station. The only thing I would say with the city is that it felt arguably a bit too dead. I mean, if you actually look at the people that you meet, it's the same people over and over again. It's the Emmy's bar diner lady. That's the only other person you, you know, kind of Claire happens to see as she's. Well, it says the only people that left are a few M. Umbrella employees, obviously the police that have been hired to continue to, to do the job, and the, those too poor to leave. But I would assume stuff like the woman at the diner, well, if you've still got customers to run the diner, you're going to keep doing it until everyone's yeah, gone. But- it might be a town that at its peak, you know, had something like 70,000 or 100,000 people, and now only has a couple of thousand or something. I was disappointed there was no more police officers, because... He talked a lot in the build-up to this film about it being like a siege film, like Assault on Precinct 13. And Mm. one of the biggest disappointments for me was when the zombies eventually broke through the gate. You know, there was no payoff to that because they kept building up and building up and building up and showing that gate weakening and more zombies turning up. And all it amounted to was Irons and Leon and Claire running to the parking lot and Claire shooting a couple of zombies. You know, there was no payoff. Mm. One of the biggest faults of this movie for a horror action film, there's hardly any death. I know we've got a lot of popular characters from the games that we know are going to survive, but there's not really that many secondary characters that die, really. I know we talk about budget issues, etc., but I think the film really needed a little bit of an extended action scene in the police station. I think we needed, you know, a couple of shots of the zombies overwhelming some of the police. Mm. I think I think that would have helped a little bit because we talk about the meshing Remake 2 and Remake 1 together. Yes, it's not the best creative choice, and that's probably the most popular criticism the movie's had, which I think everyone expects even before it came out but I still to this day think Roberts knows that he's just thought fuck it this is probably a one-shot deal for me I'm going to do both I don't care what anyone says but there isn't really a lot of Resident Evil 2 in here there's no G-Virus seizure plot there's no Ada the G-Virus is largely in the background for the whole of Raccoon City being infected all we see in the film is a shot of a couple of zombies walking down the street and then that very very brief scene in the police station you know it makes me wonder why bothered really you could still have the police station and just use that for character development and things. And well, that's, just... that's exactly what I was saying earlier yeah. on, John. That, like, you set up the start, you have the police station, you can set up your characters that would potentially appear in a sequel and mostly focus it around the, you know, the, as the setup and then focus the rest of the movie around the mansion incident. Yeah. But the, he wanted to obviously include Claire and Leon as characters, and to do that, he needed to establish more of the city and, and, and the RPD, although it doesn't, yeah, very much go much into the actual plot or two other than what's happening with the city itself. Mm. And even then, it, and Burke and a little bit, obviously, as well. But, well, he kind yeah, of tried to get around that but by saying this is the night shift, wasn't it? It's the midnight shift. That's why there was no other police officers around. Yeah. I guess like the same thing about what you were saying about the town, like how many people are actually in this town, how many is the day shift, you know, what's the crossover here? Yeah, it is a bit of a weird... 
weird one. Some of Roberts's uh, sort of quotes are, are dubious at best as well. Like when he mentions about being given the blueprints for the original designs, you know, so they were able to like make certain locations down to you know the square meter, and it, a lot of it just amounts to you know the front desk of the RPD main hall, and the rest yep. of it's just blue Mansion. screen behind the actor. Yeah. Comes across as a little bit disingenuous from him, to be honest. There's certainly a feeling, and I've seen it on Discords and on Twitter and whatnot, that there was a certain degree of manipulation with that pre-release interviews and whatnot to try and entice people. I get that, but then I'm on the flip side. I'm, I prefer at least that there's some, I know this sounds bad, but there's some proof in the pudding of that. Like, at least they do look like what they should like the main hall definitely looks like the main hall whereas you know i'd get that statement from anderson you know that we we had bandied around before where you know he's talked about how he was such a massive fan and blah 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 and yet you saw that original movie and you know we know the story behind why that first movie barely has anything to do with the franchise was literally because he wrote it in case he didn't get the rights he was going to go off and make his own zombie movie and that's literally what functions most of that movie for its connections it's kind of a weird one i mean we know there's stuff that's been removed they shot at least a scene or something in front of kendo gun shop that's not in the movie but we know that from the photos that they got leaked. this from probably some other stuff that got dropped they got shot there could be other things did Kendo's Gun Shop actually make it into any shot? I don't think I noticed. No. You can see it in the background, I think, where Claire and Birkin nearly run into each other and face each, each other. other off. I think you can see the gun shop in the background. The, the, the way it was dressed looked like there was an actual scene or something that was shot around it. And they... uh, yeah, I heard someone said on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember who it was, but he'd seen the... Um, he went to one of the test screenings and apparently there's a sequence with Kendall's gun shop and it explains why the zombie on uh, the table in Birkin's lab is there. Apparently that's Emma yeah, Kendall. Yeah. It's supposed to be Emma, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, whilst we're talking about the RPD and zombies... There's only one zombie we need to really focus on. The star of the show and uh, eternal fan of Jennifer Page and Crush. (laughs) Please, in as many grunts and moans and noises you can uh, fathom, what was your reaction to that on-fire zombie scene? Starstone? To bewilderment. (laughs) Perfect word. Perfectly. I can't add anything to that. Bewilderment. I think as a, as a scene, if you took away the music, it was interesting. Like it, it served its purpose. But it go it comes back to what we were talking about before that Leon is so bumbling that even with the gate open, the door wide open, he, he doesn't hear or feel well. the heat of the explosion. <laughs> but then the other like, fucking <laughs> petrol tanker that explodes by the front door. Like that would that would hear. rock the building plus with those doors open you would definitely feel the heat of that fireball and yet he's nodding off you know to sleep listening to this music yeah i think i was more incredulous about the situation than i was about yeah. the actual scene i d- the music is silly but like i'm, I'm assuming it's a real stunt yes. performer like that might be cg augmented to increase the amount of flames but i assume that the guy was doing an actual burn from that perspective that's a cool stunt but so it could be cg i don't know for me it was the way he was walking it's yeah. the way it's the way he just casually walks like he's not gonna care. On he's meant to be a fucking zombie on fire and he just casually walks in like he's coming up to say hello i just oh fucking i hated it absolutely hated that i can't fathom at any point when roberts looked at that scene and thought yeah this works you know it's it's just awful 
I just I, the movie for me was working quite well to that point, and it really took me out of the film. I was like, "Fucking hell!" This, you know, we were sat in that cinema screen, Nick, with all those critics, and I was like, I was feeling quite pleased. I was like, "Oh yeah, this is this is what Resident Evil should be like. This is what the games are like." And then that scene played, and I just wanted to squirm in my fucking chair. I just wanted to shout over to Mark Kermode and say, "Don't worry, that's not in the games." You proudly wear your Resident Evil podcast t-shirts and whatnot. I zipped my coat up when that scene came on, yeah. I think I had a conversation with someone, I can't remember who, that I reckon, or we reckon, that that scene went wrong in the sense that clearly he was supposed to be a zombie. And as John said, he just kind of walked out as if, you know, he was just coming over to report a crime. He should have been made... like a zombie. Yeah, it would have... And I just wonder if the real stunt double that did it couldn't do it because he was too much on fire. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it would have made more sense if it wasn't the truck driver because the truck, like to me, the truck driver, if I was in the explosion, probably would have burnt even as a zombie pretty crispy before even being able yeah. to get up. It would have made more sense if it was like just some person who was caught in the explosion. And then that would make more sense that they weren't a zombie. Like that would have worked, but trying to set that all up and make it work, your shortcut is still, it's just the driver. But you're right. Yeah. He doesn't walk like a zombie. He just kind of casually arms down, wanders in, but you could be right. It could actually be the burn. But then I've seen you go back to the eighties. It was a big deal. Like I was actually just watching this the other day. It was about the um, stunt performer that used to do a lot of real famous burn scenes in movies in the eighties. And he would run around like a maniac. He would catch on fire and then fall down a staircase and then get himself back up and keep on going still fully a light like his most infamous one was doing exactly that i think he did it for nightmare in elm street the whole point was that he was supposed to be on fire and he was just supposed to walk past the camera and drop in front of the stairs and instead he like did a full burn run kind of walk run past the camera went all the way up the stairs which he wasn't supposed to do because obviously he could have set the entire stairwell on fire <laughs> fell down the stairs proceeded to try and get back up the stairs and then fell over halfway up the stairs and it's in the movie it's an amazing shot but like he's way more animated than that which is the other reason why I'm like uh, is this actually someone properly on fire they just kind of augmented it because there is obviously a bit of CG augmentation going on here you'll have seen the original thing from another world Rob there's a fantastic on fire sequence where they're literally throwing petrol on the thing <laughs> and it's an actor <laughs> in a fire suit or something yeah and this is it like you know you can definitely do more than that and that's why i'm confused even if it is like this is definitely a choice of direction like you're just going to walk in on fire it's going to be casual this music this is the (laughs) joke and obviously it just is super freaking awkward so it's about like you know honest filmmaking is like if not to mention lord of the rings again but like isn't the good one where you've actually got like a scene in the making of where they've got like moments from the edit. And to be honest, even like the Star Wars movies have done this, where you, you do see the occasional person challenge like Peter Jackson or George Lucas and say, this doesn't really quite work. Why was no one saying to Roberts, like, what is this? Like, why am I editing this into the movie? What purpose does this serve? And the fact that it went through so many hands, so many people, and it's still in the movie. With that soundtrack as well... And it wasn't challenged at any level, and any level creatively. Why wasn't your man yeah. Kobayashi there going, this is undermining my boy Leon? What are you fucking doing? One has to wonder if it's got anything to do with perhaps inside sabotage from a certain Mr. Anderson who was involved with this film, perhaps <laughs> wants to knock it, you know, below the nah, bar. I mean, I've had this argument online, but the reason why he's an executive producer, and I'm going to caveat because there was a couple of people that said this, you can't 100% prove this. And I was like, well, that's true, I can't. But generally speaking, because all of the names 
teams of executive producers are all the production partners who worked on the previous Anderson films. It tells me that aside Constantine, the Davis Films production company, which is Anderson and um, what's the Jeremy Bolt, it's their production company. They were all involved with those films. They obviously, over that course of six franchise films, which continued to make more and more money, got more heavily involved and probably co-owned the rights or possibly have some invested interest. So that's why they're executive producers, because that's the point. They're either on there because they've got production connections or they're financing connections. It's generally the reasons. That doesn't mean executive producers can't put their input in, but most of the time in most films, executive production is, is a courtesy more than a... If you want to go look at the Hitman movie, Vin Diesel was credited as an executive producer because at one point he was going to be that character and then he pulled out but he was still involved in getting the movie up and running so they gave him the credit of executive producer because he'd helped get that movie same on star wars solo isn't it lord and miller are executive producers on because they were originally going to be director and started working the project exactly and sometimes you continue to get that credit sometimes you do have heavier input but most of the time executive producers are one of two they're credited because of connection to production or they are literally the people funding the movie um for indie films especially they can be literally people who bankrolled or found the bankroll for them for the movie and that's why they get that credit so i'd say because of the connection with constantine with the previous films it would make the most sense and i would say he probably had zero interest in wanting to mess with the story because he was just like it's a different take it's not my films he's been asked if he'd like to come back and do them and he said oh, i wouldn't mind making more so if he if it was really his impetus he wouldn't have even let this project go in the first place he would have said oh, i'm going to make an, another seventh Resident Evil film. Okay, um, so another BOW that makes, <laughs> Sorry. makes that's fine, that's fine. Rant, rant, rant. makes an appearance is the return of the zombie dog, aka the Cerberus. I've always said in the films at least that I thought the Resident Evil Extinction Cerberus were the best. I thought the, the way they were shot in the in that kind of pit fighting pit thing that they have in the third film was the best way of doing it and it and it looked better. I really like the idea of a Doberman becoming a zombie dog just by purely licking blood i thought that was just a really clever idea we've never really seen something like that before I'd imagine it probably happens quite a lot in theory if it, in real life if that were to happen um but I, I really again i like the simplicity of it but again we only get one and it looked okay it looked better in the film than it did in the trailer which i think everyone was a bit dubious about but then i feel it's somewhat undone by the netflix teaser which probably made it look even better i have said there's definitely an improvement on the visual effects in the final film over the cg like even the yes. truck looks better in the final film which tells you that they continue to iterate the cg for the dog thing is such a problem for me of the netflix series not to go on a tangent because it's literally all we've seen and immediately people like they released it specifically on time it's almost like it was to mess with the movie almost but yep. it's like it's just one cg shot and i'm glad that the, there's the guys on the guy that's involved with the production is on twitter and he's been very positive about making the effects and it obviously does look really good i'm not downplaying that but then maybe they've got a different budget or a different time you know like there's episodic television and then it's got probably a budget per episode and then so much per visual effects sometimes visual effects and tv do look better than films and sometimes it's the opposite so it doesn't really qualify the product the end result because of just because the dog looks better or mm. worse this is also the first time we've seen a dog slowly turn as well which i really appreciated we've never seen that in the games either as far as i can recall off the top of my head it almost had like this build-up of rabies uh, with its kind of foaming mouth and that unnerving look it started to give to uh, the truck driver as he was looking at you know as the dog was looking at him mm. as and, then, get, and then bites him yeah, yeah. yeah I, I thought i thought that was really good and for what we got of the zombie dog 
I thought it worked quite well. I said I don't think it looked quite as good as it did in in some of the Anderson films, but it it didn't look horrendous, even if it was taken out by a fire extinguisher. Was it? Yes, the one from uh, Rockford Island. <laughs> he remembered to bring it this time. Didn't leave it behind in the security box. Mm. But any, anyone have any comments on the zombie dog? It was fine, but it's it's nothing we haven't seen before. You know, it's almost think... like the dog was there because it, people expect to see it rather than it actually adding anything. Yes, it was nice to see it slowly turn, but you know, we've seen the dogs before. Give us something new. I think also having that basement car park scene, they went well. That's quite well known to have the dogs in it. That's as far true. As the, it's kind of where they went with that. I guess it's the same as like having the zombie head turn you know like in the mansion it's it's there because it's such an iconic image i suppose it was nice just to see it get pummeled with a fire extinguisher rather than alice to turn up in a miniskirt and jump 30 feet in the air and fly kick it to death yes a bit more grounded a bit more grounded but it's a shame again you know there would have been probably a dog unit at the rpd maybe so you know they could have i think it's implied i think you see uh, one of the unit vehicles or something has a canine thing on it in the background at some point in the movie it's a shame the dogs didn't chase the stars members into the mansion again it probably comes down to budget but you know it would have been nice to see yes but then we get the crow, don't we? The, the kind of zombie crow, which was interesting. Probably one of the biggest jump moments in the film. <laughs> the crow just crashing into the window at the very beginning of the film. That made, certainly made me jump. I, yeah, I, thought, I thought the zombie crow looked quite good. What, the CGI one? I thought it looked awful. Both of them. The one on the well, stars truck. The one on the truck seemed to be part practical, but the one that crashes into the cafe window just seemed to be complete CGI to me. I'll have to have a look. I'll have to check that again. The one on the I truck th- certainly looked a lot better. Hmm. The ones in Extinction were okay, actually, weren't they? Because you had a couple of good close-up shots with them. But that was a, a relatively uh, new one. And then, of course, we get the liquor. John, I'm going to assume you're in the same sort of opinion here as the Cerberus. I.e., there's a liquor because they expect it to be a liquor. There's no explanation as to how or why or even where that liquor came from. It just appears in the orphanage because of reasons. Yeah, pretty much. Although I thought it looked fine. It was nice to see the remake 2 variant of it, if you like. Um, And I thought it was quite a nice touch how Lisa obviously knew it was there and was trying to warn Leon to be quiet, but Leon just fucking ignored her and started shouting anyway. But um, (laughs) but yeah, it was was quite a nice sequence with the liquor. Again, I just wish there was more of them. I appreciate there's budget restrictions, but I'm sure there's, there's tricks that could play, there's ways around it to make you as the audience believe that there's more of them around or do something to imply that there's more than one of them there you know I, I think I mentioned in the discord when the stars members are creeping around the mansion why not have like the hunters clicking on the floor I appreciate that can also backfire in the sense that it leads to disappointment that we don't actually see them but it would be nice to think that there's other stuff out there rather than just the zombies this is biohazard after all it's about bioorganic weapons let's give the audience some idea that these things are about you know even the extent of the zombies themselves, because there was some discussion about having the crimson head style enemies and they most basically don't seem existent in the review to be or distinct from zombies if they're in any of the scenes they're just zombies so yeah mm. going back to the liquor that i agree um it looked good i thought the cgi was good it was just as brief wasn't it how long you know it wasn't in it particularly long i prefer it to the paul anderson liquors Certainly the the first mutated one from the game. And you get the nice moment where, you know, kind of, again, crawls down off the ceiling. And I thought uh, Brian Irons' death was particularly gruesome. You know, that was quite an effective 
an effective way to be uh, to be killed because he was certainly outstaying his welcome by that point. I think that that was the only half shocking death in the whole film. I mean, obviously we knew he was going to die at some point, but because he doesn't die that way in the games, it was quite unexpected. But every other death in the entire film is, you know, ridiculously predictable. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a mystery because they they look in the different direction and he's in the background of the shot and then he just gets yanked out of the shot by this thing that you don't realize what it is at first. I couldn't help but feel that Ben Bertolucci's death could have been a. They could have used the Cerberus or the, you know the zombie dogs at that point. Perhaps you know he lets him free from the cell and then they go they go back up into into the car park lot or something like that. And then they're they're all kind of attacked by lots of Cerberus or something like that. That might have been quite a good way. I think that's true because the predictable setup of that would have been it would have been much more interesting if Leon actually got him out of the cell before he got attacked. So you still have your ramped up tension, for lack of a better word, because I don't think it was much tension to the scene, but like where he's about to get bitten by the zombie that's stuck in the cell with him. Then he manages to get out of the cell, and then he dies. And then dies anyway, yeah. It's my most frustrated scene in the movie, because he's got a gun. He knew that there's a zombie there, you know, because he makes the point, oh yeah, this person's fine, you know. He knew he was coming to get him. He could have just turned around and shot him at any point, because he had the gun. I really struggled to understand, you know, why he was being killed at that point. It, as you said, it was so it's lacking any form of tension because it's like because he he was in control. He had the gun. Yeah, it continues t- Leon's bumbliness as per usual, right? Yeah, there, yeah. He exactly. ends up saving the day, and yeah, they could they could have dragged him out. Obviously, he was always going to peg it, but yeah, they they could have done a bit more. I, I like what they did with Ben. Actually, I thought it was quite a good, you know, not just to be the journalist, but more of a conspiracy theorist. And I think that that was quite I think that was quite good. Did we want to talk about Birkin's as a BOW again, or do you think we've already covered that a bit? Yeah, I, I found the climax just a bit pointless. I was enjoying the scenes in the mansion with uh, Chris. I know, mm. I know you weren't a fan of that scene in the dining room, Rob, but I, I quite liked the scenes where he was just walking around slowly and you could hear the zombies in the background. I'll just caveat. I did like that. I just didn't like the scene where he's getting attacked and the, it's the, what Nick referred to before as the, the, the zombie waiting until the light was on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's the only bit I didn't like. I like the walking around the mansion. I, I wanted more of that. You know, this comes back to the whole thing about the, the movie. I, I would have preferred more exploring and of course if it came down to having more enemies like you were referring to as well john you know like even if it's a shadow or a sound Mm. uh you know that would have been something Mm. but yeah just to dwell on the mansion a little bit i enjoyed the first proper zombie reveal i thought they got that spot on with the way the zombie turned around yeah richard's death was pretty good he was maybe a bit casual the way he was backing away with all those zombies coming at him but i kind of liked that fixed camera shot you get of his death where you can sort of see them struggling to come down the stairs and in the background they're all sort of piling on him that was good um and, and you know the way chris was trying to fend off the zombies grabbing him and then he'd turn around and another one was, you know, right there. That was that was quite good. Um, I just wish there was a bit more of that. But then when we come to the end of the film and the whole scene in Nest, which basically looked like someone's garden shed or garage, that's where it got a bit disappointing to me. Yeah, the actual look of the transformation looked pretty good, but because of what we know happens in that situation with the characters, you know, Leon, Claire, Chris, Jill, Sherry, you know they've all got this plot armour, nothing's going to happen to them, and it's just going to end up with a load of scenes. Like Sean said, the main character gets grabbed, and instead of being killed, just gets thrown away. And you know Birkin's not going to kill any of them, and it feels like it was just done because Roberts thinks all oh, people are going to be expecting that to be in there. Um, and for, you know, for a climax, it just felt a little bit flat to me. 
Mm. You know, if, yeah, if we kind of cover that whole bit. I really like the mansion. I wanted to spend a lot longer there. I think they actually nailed it very well, especially as they were flying into it. It was almost like exactly from the games. The forest scene was good. The, the overturned truck was like something from Resident Evil Zero with the MP truck. And then going into the mansion, it was particularly creepy. And again, the kind of CGI look of the mansion looked it looked fine. Yeah, some of the geography wasn't exactly right, but you know what? It had that aura. It felt like a version of the Spencer Mansion, uh, which is much more so than what we got in the first Resident Evil movie. What's interesting as well is that um, I think it's October from Rely on Horror um, shared on Twitter that there's a one moment where you can actually see Wesker's map that he's got of the, the mansion, and I think it is lifted from Remake, but with the curved corridor that they walked down like, oh really bolted on so you can actually see it on like the game's map and you can see this this additional curved corridor which is a really neat touch yeah oh, that is yeah, yeah. It's just a shame, really, because they had so many Easter eggs in the background, but they're quite difficult to spot. Like, I know we saw in the marketing the uh, the painting of the two knights running each other through in the dining room. You can't really see that in the finished film. And, you know, is it look, even in there? You can see it, but only if yeah. you know it's there. Um, if you hadn't have seen it in any of the marketing, you'd probably miss it completely. And even the more obvious ones, like the Welcome Leon sign in the Star's office, you don't see that at all in the film. You see the back of it, so it doesn't have the letters on it. Yeah, it's the wrong way around, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, that's no, that's really interesting. That that map. I said to you, John, didn't I? In the cinema, I said, "Oh, Trent." It's exactly from the S.D. Perry novels. In the yeah. sense, I think it's, it's Jill in, in the in the novel. She goes around with a map that she's been with a kind of PDA. She's been given to it by Trent, who's a, an original character. So I, whether that was a, a nod to the Perry books, who knows. I suspect it's more of a technology of the time. I mean, that's the one thing I can get, say about it as well, the aesthetic of that, like Leon's Discman, the phone systems, the PDA, uh, the computers at the desks, everything looks period correct. There might be a few things not exactly perfect, but I think generally speaking, it all looks like stuff from 1998. So, Yes. Mm, I think part of the reason the mansion looked so good as well is because it was a proper location, wasn't it? It wasn't set by the main hall yeah i just wish there was a little bit more of it i just wish um wesker and jill had got their own little maybe action scene in there before they went to the library uh return of the magic elevator from resident evil zero i thought that was a wonderful homage (laughs) everyone picked up on that i certainly did i was like oh it's back Somehow an elevator that went from the orphanage, which was next door to the RBD, went down and then out towards the mansion. Who knows? Who the hell knows? We don't know how long that tunnel was. <laughs> Bear in mind, they needed to fly from the RPD to the... Exactly. Uh, <laughs> That's what I mean. But the tunnel was miles underground. It doesn't show you how long it is, but it does look long. But this is this is the, probably my biggest bugbear as far as locations go. It's like, okay, they've got this idea of like, we're going to have this giant cavernous length of tunnel basically it's it's not a massive tunnel which is it's walkable it's fine and then you get to the lab that's underneath and it's literally just like a box and it's a room and it looks like it was outdated by about 20 years and <laughs> it's like it's like mm, i can understand the secret lab but it's like you think that something that's connected between the orphanage and the mansion miles away would be slight i'm not wanting nest too but no. you know or nest but i'm expecting something a little bit more lab like than like a 
dentist's office. <laughs> <laughs> There's obviously another way in because obviously because Birkin got in another way. Yeah, I would assume there must be some ground level access from another building that Umbrella owned. It took him all night to get there, though, didn't it? it took him like literally, <laughs> literally six hours well, to is, get there and get his yeah, samples. Yeah, because yeah, they were driving when Claire was going to the RPD, and then he was. I mean, he might have been there for a while when when, when they turn up. But. Magic elevator. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, still plaguing the series geography wonderful wonderful so i think with the locations is very much a, a kind of mixed bag again it, 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 i i think it goes to the heart of the film that there was a lot of potential there's a lot of ideas and i i genuinely believe that roberts is a big fan of the games and he, i i think he did the best that he could within the budget i agree and i think the art directors and those who were working with him definitely like paid attention to the details they, you know they looked for the references they tried to turn the locations they had into facsimiles where possible mm. You know, they built an entire frontage gate to the RPD and, you know, we saw, we saw a photo of that and obviously recreated bits of the mansion and the foyer and some of it's CG augmented. And But, you know, this passion behind the look and style to it, it just, it's like everything else, probably a, a somewhat to slave to the budget, somewhat a slave to the writing yeah, and somewhat just a, a feasibility kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think in hindsight he should have just stuck to one game? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, 100%. I, as I said, I think if you did the setup with the RPD and the stars team in the office and you could have set up Leon as the rookie character and just had him there as, a, as another Easter egg, for lack of a better term, the fact that Chris is, uh, has a sister that's trying to get in contact with him and leave those for sequels and then spent the entire time dealing with the mansion incident. And you could start to tie it into Birkin and all that. You could still have that Birkin connection at the end, much like Resident Evil Zero does, and leave that for the sequel. Leave, you know, that's it. But I do agree. I, was it Jude John or maybe Sean? Someone said talking about, you know, basically Robert's trying to say, you know, he maybe just, he knew it was a one-and-done deal, so he was going to get it all in there while he could. And if it did okay, then he'd get to make his Code Veronica sequel. But, yeah. What about you, Sean? Would you, would you have stuck to just one game? And if so, which one would you have gone for? There's arguably more of the first game in there than what we've alluded to of the sequel. I think if they'd done something like supremely clever with manipulating the time periods and whatnot, like I said earlier, and having the two events converge without the audience knowing about it, I think that could have been kind of neat. But you can't deny the fact that both narratives are harmed by splitting a hundred what is it, hundred and ten minute movie um across two stories. And you only have to look at how impaired the characterization has been as a result of doing that. You know, if the, if there's the biggest casualty in this movie, it is the characters. It's the fact that there are no arcs. No character in this movie goes through a journey. And I think that's ultimately the, the biggest crime it does, in all honesty. And I think that is solely to blame on the fact that there is simply not enough time to dedicate to either story. So in trying, it's one of those ironic situations that in trying to sort of please fans of the first game, fans of the second game, he's pleased no one. Which we see all too much these days, to be honest. Mm, interesting. Let's quickly then talk about sequel potential. Uh, we can also then bring in the discussion points about takings. I mean, the box office takings haven't been updated for a long time. I don't think that nothing's been taken into account for the majority of December. So at the point recording, the total takings look to be around $31 million. I mean, from a box office perspective... I mean, this is it. I mean, most of the places haven't updated because they've stopped screening it. Like, it was actually still staying in the top 10 in the US for most of December because it was just enough of the screenings that it was plodding along, making a certain amount. 
but the thing that killed it in the end was them removing it from cinemas to free out screens for other things that were doing more popular, like Spider-Man, which is yeah. understandable. It probably would have kept plodding along, making a bit of money, you know, a few hundred thousand here or there, because that's what it was doing every week. It was sitting around fifth or sixth or seventh place for the weeks after its first couple. But that's it. And then we obviously, like the fact that George wasn't able to see it because literally after we recorded our last podcast, it was already pulled from the cinemas near him. Um, it didn't get a release here. So I had to wait until it was rentable online, basically. So, you know, the box office is detrimentally affected by Sony's lack of interest in seemingly releasing it because they didn't have any confidence in it. And probably COVID as well. But. I can't understand why they'd want to free screens up for Spider-Man. I mean, but... <laughs> <laughs> not, from what I understand, that's not done terribly well. <laughs> no, it's just, it's done hor- horrendously, hasn't it? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm looking at the stats now. Uh, overall, so domestically, um, US, uh, it's made almost seventeen million, sixteen million nine hundred thirty-seven thousand. Assuming that yeah, the, that was from release of the twenty-fourth, and they stopped counting it. No, they're still counting it. It's in some cinemas in in the states. It's uh, it's making about. They went from sitting in the sixth to kind of within the top 10 until just before Christmas and then immediately sunk as all the number of screens dropped off. From the 16th, it went from 2,500 screens down to 719. So put that in perspective. And now on average in, in the States, it's making a few thousand dollars a day still. You know, that's it. It's, it's literally the number of screens. Where you guys in the UK hasn't even made a million dollars. It's made 675,000. France, uh, 1.497. Spain, just over a million. Mexico, a million and a half. Russia, a million. You know, most of the places are sitting in the hundreds of thousands. Is that you, been updated, got, though? Yeah, it's up to date. It's, it depends on the region. So each region is up to date. All you do is just click on the thing. It'll tell you the range states. For example, Australia, for example, 343,000 uh, through to Boxing Day. So it, that's just when the mm. last update's been provided. Uh, so United Kingdom... Uh, I can tell you goes through, yeah, it's, it's out of date. It hasn't been updated since the 12th, but that probably also may tell you that it stopped screening after the 12th. Probably, probably. Which, it has, it which would, in Japan, yeah. That's the only, yeah. The, the last big, big market for it to come and I And I suspect, I suspect it won't make yeah. a massive difference to the box office. It, it would be lucky to be half a mil. So in your right. professional opinion, <laughs> as our film person, is it going to make enough from home release, rental, and Blu-rays. In this day and age, probably not. No. If, if this was ten, if this was ten ten years ago, I'd be very surprised. So you don't think we're going to get Welcome to Rockfall no. Island? No, I honestly would be very, very, very surprised. It would have to be that Constantine Screen Gems as the distributor both had to make enough money off pre-organized distribution rights. And considering the way that this has been distributed and Screen Gems itself as a distributor and the way it's been handled, I would be very shocked if they were willing to go back and grow another another one. It would have to take off and explode in rentals online and sales and blu-ray and stuff and these days the blu-ray market is continuing to dwindle because more and more people just watch stuff online so mm. interestingly though it was one of the most high, highly pirated movies last month so there's obviously <laughs> an audience out there that were wanting to uh watch it but not willing to pay for it which is also a shame and unfortunately by feeding into that by providing that digital copy in just before christmas and not putting it on theaters wider to begin with they probably did actually kill some of the box office it could have made if it had a wider release they've kept it in longer 
actually, you know, released it properly in places like the UK, like here in New Zealand, for example, and didn't release the digital copy until, say, a month later, it probably wouldn't have been as heavily pirated. So, you know, it was only up from whatever day the release of the day was the 21st, I think it was. So it was one of the most pirated things in December, and yet it was only up for about 10 days. So take that as you will as well. I think it's a shame because I actually think a sequel would, could do really well. It's a slightly more focused script. If they're going to use Code Veronica, because that's what Roberts has talked about as being the sequel he wanted to make, or, you know, then mm. I think that has the hallmarks of actually telling a really interesting narrative with the kind of family aspects that Code Veronica brings with the Ashfords and, you know, having Claire and Chris back. And then Wesker back in as well, I think would be a really, really good follow up sequel. I guess this is, this is the point where I want to talk about the very end and the post credit scene. Go for it. The ending was absolutely abrupt and terrible. I think I was absolutely flabbergasted when it just it just ended. They're walking out, nobody says anything, cuts title. And I'm just like, anyway, what? <laughs> not even a comment, not even a something about Umbrella, not even like, I can't believe we survived that. No, we <laughs> just slam cut to title. Yeah, we're done. And then that post credit sequence was laughable. I'm sorry. It made the scene of Matt's transformation in the original Resident Evil look like freaking the highest form of art you've ever seen in your life. I'm just sorry. It was so bad. Yes, it was a bit weird. Has Sean or John got anything to say about this? I'm not the only one who has weirdness about the abruptness of the ending and that post-credit sequence, right? It's not just me. No, no, I, I agree with you. I um, I didn't like the post-credit sequence at all because it just doesn't work for me. I said it earlier, but in the context of the way Wesker's written in this film, there is no reason why the rival company would bring, mm. him, bring him back to life. It's just because it happens in the game. Roberts is like, shit, I better do it. And oh, fuck, I forgot the sunglasses. Let, let's throw in some bollocks about that as well, which makes no sense. The end in itself, very abrupt, as you say, but uh, that whole sequence overall, I just found very underwhelming for the climax of the film. Um, and then the destruction of Raccoon City at the end with the cow. I mean, the less said about that, the, be- the better, I think. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Tw- I was going to say, tw- you know, Twister and the cow. You remember the cow and yes. the Twister? Oh, yeah. Cow. That's all I can think of. Cow, yeah, exactly. That's all I can think of. Um, I saw that. The smash cut to black, I know it's a trope that's used particularly, you know, in these, I don't even know, it's, it's used a certain genre. Genres, a certain really. genre. I, 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 I know what you mean, Sean, yeah, a certain genre. It's, but it's, it's, just, it's just a few seconds too early. You don't get enough, you know, the, the smoke barely clears enough for you to sort of get the emotional relation on the characters' faces, and then it's fucking gone. It's, um, it's not just that, it's that text, the terrible text they put over the top, the green, which just does, doesn't make any The green. Well, I get it's like a tr- old... Yeah. It, it's not even um, 90s, it's like, you know, it's an old you know, DOS-based thing. And the fact that, you know, again, it kind of threw a Nest Lab and Assets thing in there, didn't it? But it's just like, yeah, okay, Outbreak Contained, what? (laughs) The only thing I'll say about the post credit scene is the fact that I fucking called it about eight months ago. (laughs) That is true, you did. In all honesty, anyone could have called it. It was the most obvious post credit stinger they were going to do. The moment they showed Tom Hopper not wearing the sunglasses, you knew, arguably, the sunglasses gets the arc of any character in the movie because <laughs> <laughs> it, it defines a character by the end it represents a change it's like having sherry there at the end of the of the survivors out of the tunnel but she's meant absolutely nothing to the film at all <laughs> other than just being birkin's daughter who's there you know i like the use of the body bag because that was 
straight out of remake. I thought that was quite nice. There's so many Easter eggs. Are you talking about the opening scene of remake? But that's a reference to Dawn of the Dead. That's where that comes. Oh, from. is it? I didn't know. So like that's a real classic scene in the original Dawn of the Dead. Where one of the characters gets put in a body bag and then he gets well, he's in a bed and he gets up. He's not in a body bag, but he gets up and it's exactly frame for frame the same. That, that's what that is a reference to. Oh, so so it's just the tale eating itself, basically. Okay, before we cast our final scores, we've had a few call-ins that uh, people have sent to us with their review and opinion on on Welcome to Raccoon City. So the first call-in has come in from AJ. So let's hear what he has to say. Hey guys, AJ here with my first call-in. And I wish this was under better circumstances, but... Um, here we are. Uh, well, like everyone else on the Discord, I was looking forward to the movie, went in with some level of expectations, but I have to say that I left really disappointed, maybe even more so than any of the Anderson films because I had higher expectations. From us game fans, the movie will get higher points because it's more authentic. Uh, it has more familiar characters who look the part, but uh, the execution is poor at best. Now they look faithful, but they act nothing like they do in the games. Claire is just an analog for Linda Hamilton, and Leon is like the lovable goof character in any of the uh, teen romantic flicks that you may have seen, who gets one moment to shine right at the end. Wesker acts more like a high school jock than a manipulative smart planner that he's in even the first game. Uh, Chris is the only one who looks and acts apart. I'd love to comment on Jill, but she has such a small role that you might just even cut her out and it would make no difference to the movie at all. And I think we've all had plenty of chat on this subject on the Discord over time as well. Now, I know they weren't planning for it, but that crush song scene and the Birkin and Clear stare down in the streets, that was uh, probably the most hilarious moment of the year for me. This movie is funny, but not in the way they intended. So all in all, I'd say 4 out of 10. There we go. A, a 4 out of 10 from AJ with his call-in. Thank you. Um, clearly not impressed with, with Leon or a lot of the characterizations. An interesting point that he raises is also to do with expectation. And I know, George, you were quite keen to talk about expectation. Well, no, just that I think you made a good point in the chat. And actually, I've heard AJ's call because it's one of the first ones that came in and I listened to it the other day. And to separate, you know, what you're expecting from actually the film that we got and to kind of differentiate that and not beat the film kind of with a stick that it, it kind of never w was going to be on or never could be. And kind of what sort of speaks to that is that I don't, and it's not just AJ's criticism. I know it's a very consistent one that I'm going against the grain with that I don't think that what people feel and what their beloved incarnations of these characters in the video games, I don't think would have worked well transcribed to the big screen. I just don't think there's enough there. And so that's why I enjoyed the fact that, you know, Robert's tried to surmise what sort of people these would be and added, added to them, you know, added things that we don't really get in the, in the video games uh, from the characters. I do sympathise with Roberts in some ways because if you look at Anderson's interpretation of the characters for, you know, consistency and that, it got to the point where in Resident Evil Retribution, we just get some random Russian guy um, who's called Sergei Vladimir who, aside from the name, has got absolutely nothing to do with the character from the games. And I sympathise with Roberts because he's clearly gone to the trouble of 
getting the authentic sets, you know, recreating the, the main hall from the mansion, recreating the police station as we know it in the games. And because he's tried to put in that that level of authenticity, it makes the changes he's done with the characters all the more jarring and they stand out a lot more than what they normally would. Yeah, no, I that's what we were talking about early on with, you know, with, with we were saying like these characters, when you change things that are fundamental about what we think about these characters across the board, they become so far removed, essentially, that it becomes harder for people to understand and swallow. I mean, the same thing that George is saying, and this is, I always say to people, you've got to really temper your expectations for anything. Like I say this about movies all the time. People always go, no, I was expecting it to be really good. And it's like, you know, I even I do it. I mean, I try my best. It's like, uh, you know, we went to the new Matrix movie. Okay, so I'm going to go in and I'm thinking to myself, well, I try not have expectations, but still it's a sequel to a series of movies. And your first question is why this, why now? You know, it's hard. You know, it's, it's you, you can have the best of intentions, but you're always going to probably have some expectation. And mm. it's just about, either lowering or go try to reduce as many of them as possible and, and he's right most people probably were going to go see this and go well you know it looks it looks so far as far as the visuals go more faithful than the anderson films it's probably going to be better but you know, for some people that's it may or may not be enough well thank you aj our second call in comes in from one of our patrons um aaron zed so let's see what he has to say hey guys hope you're doing well it's aaron here first time i've called in so apologize if i ramble on but i'll try and be brief in the thoughts i have about welcome to Raccoon City. Initially, as you could all pretty much tell in the Discord, I was quite hyped for this project. Generally, I was open to the changes that were looming, and uh, Roberts himself had helped with this. Um, my anticipation for the project couldn't have been any more. He was a self-proclaimed RE2R fanatic, and wants his movie to feel like RE2R. I just thought that was brilliant, and what could possibly go wrong? Well, let me tell you this, a lot could go wrong. I didn't really like this movie very much, if at all, and that seriously, seriously disappoints me. As you all know, I'm quite a positive person as it is. There's quite a lot wrong with this movie, and I'm sure you have covered all the technicalities, uh, even just in general about the movie, it's not great. But I'm going to focus on two things in particular, um, one of them being the RPD, and the second being Mr. Kennedy. Briefly, just in the RPD, I just thought it was quite disappointing. Um, without any doubt, I think the best thing about the recent remakes is the RPD itself. And Roberts claimed to have received the blueprints for this from Capcom. Oh, it has to be bullshit, really. A maiden statue, a front desk, a gate, a parking lot. I can't even recall anything. You know, the, the general tone, the general feeling of the RPD just was non-existent. And for someone who's such a fan of this remake, didn't really rub off for me. I would have personally focused the movie more on the RPD than the mansion, even though the mansion is probably the best bit of the movie. But again, personal choice. Now, my main gripe really is Leon. I want to start by saying I quite like Evan as Leon, but I don't like the writing or the direction which the man has been given. Um, by far, it's the biggest misstep of this movie because quite frankly, he's useless. He's utterly useless. I get that they were trying to focus in on the rookie element of his character, and that's fine, but don't destroy everything that the man stands for. You know, he, he can't even cock a shotgun properly, but he can perfectly fire a rocket launcher at the end. Ugh, come on, man. I also want to just take a minute here to say that the shit that these actors have been taking on social media just is not cool. It's not cool at all. No one should have to remove their social media profiles due to an opinion of a movie. 
I think some people just need to catch a fucking grip, to be honest with you. I know I'm maybe going on here a bit, but I want to end on a positive note. I thought the soundtrack for this movie was great. Of all things that the remake 2 didn't do well, this one obviously surpassed expectation. The soundtrack for when they entered into the mansion is wonderful and it's it's atmospheric. And to be honest, I have it saved in my Spotify playlist. I think, I think it's really good. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. I hope my accent comes across okay and I hope my rambling sounds all right. Uh, keep up the good work and I'm sure we will all chat soon. There we go. Aaron said their calling was roasting chestnuts on an open fire. I was going to say, I can imagine sitting there in some sort of smoking jacket. Absolutely. A, you know, just, just casual cognac in one hand, discussing in front of the fire. Sounds like he's burning his cinema ticket to me. <laughs> <laughs> can I just talk about the social media thing? Because I do want to mention it. It is horrendous. Like, there's nothing in this movie. There's no actor that deserves hate. There's no one that really deserves any uh, affront on social media for being in this film. There are definitely much worse films. There are definitely much worse things to be worried about than the casting of a particular actor or actress. Yeah, it's it's pretty. It was pretty out of hand. And as I said to you guys a few weeks ago on one of the early episodes, absolutely horrendous sort of racism and yep. general negativity. Jesus, who was this directed at? Arvin Georgia, mostly. You know, it's mostly racist tirades, but also a little against Hannah as well. Background stuff. I think since that as well, hasn't he um, deleted his Instagram? Yes. Since our last, last podcast, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah. It's because sad. The amount of, of uh, hate that he was receiving, which is just horrendous. It's not it's unnecessary. It's just um, a character. It's just a game. It's just a movie. Mm, absolutely. Well, these people are mentally ill. I mean, you know, irrespective of, of whether the film had been good or bad, they're going to come out of the woodwork. That's the thing I kind of re- referred to is like, well, seeing some of these public Facebook groups and people were like, we're acting pretty callously bigoted and racist. And people were calling them out on it and they would just be like, I'm not racist just because I don't think that Leon shouldn't be white. You know, it's like, well, actually, you are by saying that. And. <laughs> You know, when you start specifically targeting the actor, who it is, and their ethnicity, even though he's actually half Canadian and half white, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that that's the case. It doesn't matter. He could be full-blown anything, and it, it shouldn't make any difference on the casting of that person in that role. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, uh, you know, if it walks like a, a duck and talks like a racist, it's probably a racist. And I think, I mean, that you're absolutely right, and so was Aaron, to call that out on the call. And, I mean, everything that Aaron said, I completely agree with. I mean, and listening to Aaron talk about the failings in the RPD, it's, he's absolutely right and i was thinking of that time when you know batman so expertly you know gave us that rundown of the narrative you know i think when we were doing the remake two podcast and you know the two sort of units of the the police forces on opposite sides of the building and yeah i mean obviously we weren't going to get that narrative in that detail but just that kind of like you said the assault on the precinct just having that aesthetic of the rpd of the impending devastation that just swept throughout it yeah massive kind of missed opportunity not to have had that it's a shame how they they replicated the main hall of the police station, but they didn't really make much effort with the star's office. You know, yeah, it would have been nice for them to at least make it look similar or a hybrid of original Resident Evil Two and Remake Two at least. Or e- um, even the office, the offices, you know, access on the west side, just having that that they met in there rather than their own office, you know, just because that was where the chief had brought them to, you know, like something like that. Which would then also explain why Leon would just wander on in. Mm. I must say we haven't touched upon it at all but Aaron mentioned it and I'm pleased he did uh, the soundtrack is phenomenal and if you listen to it in isolation just you know just put like the YouTube um, album on 
um, and just sit and listen to it out of context. It's a great atmospheric horror album. Mm. Um, they really did. They really did push. It's it's not referential to the game, and that's fine because it it, it totally stands alone. I was going to say it's more of a throwback to the the sort of thing we were talking about with the Carpenter films. You know, sparse horror oh, elements. Yeah. So I was it's, a bit confused what you were going on about because I mean I've always found Four Non Blondes horrific, but not in that sense. <laughs> and, 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 I knew you were going to say that. I was going to. I was explaining to my son we were just having dinner how uh, the concept of Jennifer Rush and I was trying to explain to him the way that scene was constructed, and he's just sort of looking at me and just yeah, completely... ignoring the licensed stuff. Yes, GT, we're talking about <laughs> actual score. Thank you Aaron, for that call in. Always appreciated. The next one comes in from regular contributor and former guest on the podcast, Yoke. Hello, everyone. Yoke here, and this is my little review of Welcome to Raccoon City. Sorry if I sound tired through all this. I've redone this uh, call in multiple times now, and I'm I'm exhausted. I, I really am. This movie was so bad, and I'm I'm really tired of talking about it. Honestly, CGI was bad. Most of the characters, honestly, bear little to no resemblance to their video game counterpart. Like, oh my god, I'm so sorry if you're a Leon fan. Leon gets absolutely shit on in this movie. I know he's supposed to be like the comic relief, but man, after a while, it kind of stopped being funny. Like he kept being a fuck up, and it's like, oof. Someone writing this movie really hated this fucking character absolutely hated him. I, I was disappointed in the lack of monsters, like one zombie dog, two crows, and it's just, I don't know, it's it's weird. I understand that people are going to say that, well, you know, that's intentional. The movie was supposed to seem like a, a bee movie. It's supposed to seem like a carpenter movie. And I'm like, I don't, really? Is, is that what people get out of this movie? Because I've seen bad movies. I've seen bee movies. I've watched most of Carpenter's, you know, film library, and just, I got none of that from this movie. It just seemed bad and very disjointed and rushed. And I also know, like, some people are going to say, like, what do you expect? It's a video game movie. It's also going to be bad. And can we not hold video game movies up to a higher standard? Is it just common now that we can't be hopeful that, hey, maybe there's going to be a good video game movie? Like, it's, it's so weird to me. And I also know that people are going to say, well, it's it's not a one-to-one -one remake of the video games. What do you expect it to be? You know, of course you're going to be disappointed. And I at least want something that makes me feel like it's a Resident Evil movie. The Easter eggs are cool and all, but like when they're very vapid and have no point other than to make fans clap, it feels like it's very jarring to me. And I, I feel like also the one to one, like the one to one argument is not really a good argument to me anyway, because at what point do we forgive Anderson's movies for not being exactly like the video games? Because I'm not willing to have that conversation just yet. You know, I think another thing that makes this movie hard to talk about was the fan reaction before the movie even came out. Because on one side, you have people being fucking for no reason, just being hateful to the actors, being racist. And on the other side, you have people defending this movie and calling people who have valid criticisms or worries about what they saw not true fans or just completely shutting them down because they're being, air quotes, too negative. I know this fandom's always been like kind of at odds with each other, but we need to do better. We have to do better. We can't keep doing this, guys. Oh my god, I don't, I don't know. Going back to the movie real fast, if I had to compare it to the Anderson movies, it's not as good as, you know, my favorite Anderson movie, which is the first one, but it's not as horrible as fucking Afterlife. It's it's somewhere in between. I don't I don't know if that's good enough for some of you. If if you want me to give it a rating, one flying cow out of four golden girls. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully this column was a good discussion piece for whatever it's worth. Take care, everyone.
Yes, she mentioned this. Well, one other person saw the Golden Girls reference. Well done. Uh, <laughs> See, you can tell who the old, the, the, the really old people in the community are. That me and Yoke are the only two people that recognize. I saw the Golden Girls, but I, he got he got the Flying Cow reference in there too, which is what I was. Yes, saying sorry. The, thank you, Yoke. And called Afterlife the worst answer. Which I 100 percent agree. I 100 percent agree with. It's a very close uh, between that and the final chapter. But I, I'm <laughs> Afterlife is my least favorite. Of I, the only thing that I disagreed with what Yoke said was the. Um, I think this film. I'm sorry. I do think this film is better than the first. Anderson film and he mentioned something that actually I forgot to, I had to ask you guys in the chat so confused by it it didn't make any sense was the cow was that the representation of the destruction of Raccoon City it was part of it yeah I imagine you all laughed out loud when that happened the ending was very abrupt including that and the text and then the smash cut to title why was there only one cow by the way in that field <laughs> this is just one of everything <laughs> <laughs> thank you um, thank you Yoke. Th- um, thanks Yoke. it was re- it was very good I'm gonna go on a bit of a rant I don't think in here Inherently, we're saying you know John Carpenter and B movies. Those are not inherently the same thing. And I mean, B movies are B movies. I wouldn't agree with that defense either. That there's no reason for just having these enemies with these characters because it's supposed to be a B movie. I definitely I uh, think that you can be better than that by having other things. But the Carpenter movie is not to say it's a B movie. It's just the vibe and the style. He's gone for the text choices, the chromic aberration on the text. There's a film grain. I think the film was still shot digitally, but they've added like a very heavy film grain into the blacks. There's a very aesthetic choice gone on as far as lighting and and setting that is very much of that late 70s early 80s era and that's really what i think a lot of us are talking about and the music as well as we've just touched on i agree with what you're saying i was just going to say i disagree with york's assessment about the carpenter vibe i thought they got it spot on and that was one of the strengths of the film especially in its first half yeah and i do think it felt like a resident evil film obviously it's not perfect it's got its flaws there's a lot of things we'd all do differently but i i thought yeah it captured the world well enough you know i thought it was a resident evil film and as a fan i quite enjoyed it but then you know i'm a true fan and york obviously isn't a true fan (laughs) (laughs) yeah then Uh, york's just obsessed with vampires he doesn't know anything about zombies i'm gonna say i 100 agree with what york said about the video game movies there's an inherent stigma that's attached to video game movies that is relatively unfair that gives it a pre-bias and the problem also a lot of video game movies do have and this does it a couple of times but not too bad is justification of source which is where you justify your origins by having shout outs of stuff that isn't in there or things that are really blatant in your face the thing that this does well is that it doesn't do it very often i think the, the comments regarding the enemies that aren't in this are maybe a little bit on the nose but for the most part generally the things that are in this are all from the games and character decisions obviously aside there is a certain craft and love to the actual core whereas if you look at something like i don't know the 2005 doom they've got rid of the hell aspect there's a portal but it's to another location and the location there's scientists yet the team are called like the hell blazers or hell something or the hell stompers or something stupid because that's a jokey nod to the fact of what the origins of the character and there's a sequence that's in first person because you know it was a first person shooter and that justifies you know there isn't a lot of that going on in this movie and so to kind of like try and hunker it down in a video game kind of movie thing it's just yeah it's a movie based on a video game but we have movies based on books and we have movies based on musicals and we don't look at those in the same 
sort of light so we need to start of kind of get beyond that stigma of like what a video game movie can be but in order for us to do that we need one that like across the board accepted as being a great movie for what it is not just an adaptation right well the last call in we have had thanks for that yoke uh, comes in from happy smelly so let's see what she has to say Hey, Happy New Year. Okay, so I just stayed very deliberately calm and collected throughout this movie, and I honestly didn't have a bad time. Overall, the vibes were fantastic. For me, it was just mostly about the visual experience. I enjoyed watching it. I had fun. It's fine. I'm fine. Robbie as Chris Redfield was great. The trucker scene with Doberman is genuinely worth its salt, and if the whole movie was of that quality, it'd be a cracker. Itchy tasty nod. That was really fun. I thought it was a good nod at a diary entry without having someone literally read the Keeper's diary out loud. Zombie head turn. Nailed it. The film of the Ashford twins was amazing. I liked that they made it a small town, although it was described as a shithole like ten too many times. We get it. Hannah was fantastic, but the movie just makes me feel like I've been robbed of more time with Jill. Wesker's PDA thing. Ah. Beautiful, straight out of Perry's novel, and I loved it. I love her book so much. It was just awesome to see it referenced, 10 out of 10. Um, ultimately, though, just I, should, I felt like it should have just been kept way simpler. Obviously, ideally would have preferred two movies doing each game separately. Everybody knows this. I did not appreciate the connection between Birkin and Chris. Wasn't sure why they included Sherry there if the point wasn't to have Birkin chase after her. The moment when the truck driver... <laughs> walked into the RPD on fire was probably one of the most surreal pinch myself to check if I'm awake moments I've had in a long time but I think they just spent way too much time over complicating and explaining what should have been a relatively simple umbrella made a virus and it's gotten out of containment premise and by the time the movie feels like the premise is set and really starts chugging along it's over there's serious issues in the writing of the characters but everybody looks really great and is giving a spirited performance Claire was a bit of a letdown but Look, I'm just way too tired to be genuinely upset by this film. I had fun. I like a lot of the ideas going on here. It's yet another Resident Evil property brimming with potential, but done dirty by its own execution. It's right on brand. <laughs> Why are these young people tired? Come on, get some more exercise. It's working. They've got to work, George. They're not like you. <laughs> I just He's love the action because it's very atypical. Oh, so I just gotta do this, and no, that's fantastic. And I didn't really hate it, but I didn't really love it either. Yeah. <laughs> Who needs to do a three-hour podcast when Happy can do it in one minute fifty-six and cover all our points in in, in, in rapid succession? Um, on brand is a great, yeah, is a great. Uh, that that's something that you need to say with your. Uh, Missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. She's basically saying that by saying it's on brand because yeah. that's all the series has been for many Oh no. Years. Thank you, Happy, as always, for your call in there. I think that's given us a bit of food for thought as we're wrapping up the podcast. What is everyone's final thoughts? Does it feel like a Resident Evil movie? And what's your final score? I thought I liked this film relatively until I listened to those call ins, and which. I mean, apart from, I say, honestly, apart from the kind of this, I think, slight over-obsession with they have to be like they are in the games, and I don't feel the games give us sufficient character development in order to do that. Generally, I've agreed with the criticisms that we've had. People are going to laugh out loud listening to this. I was creeping towards 7 out of 10. I'm I'm easily pleased. And listen, I'm so emotionally scarred by Paul Anderson's efforts that, yeah... (sighs) 
six out of ten six and a half i'm gonna say just for the love the clear love that was behind this and some of the ideas that were right just perhaps the execution was wrong or they went just too over the top but with some of the changes i think particularly recognizing what i think they were trying he was trying to do with wesker with lisa trevor with the zombies was wonderful you know that slow deterioration and the whole aesthetic you know you talk about the dressing i thought that you know i loved the the, the entrance the uh spencer mansion lots of points off for some appalling you know scripts sort of inconsistencies and, and just poor direction uh RPD terrible and, and what they did with Leon six and a half out of ten I'm going to keep mine simple I agree entirely with your assessment George and I think your scoring is accurate and I look forward very much to the 4k UHD release Batman yeah pretty similar I had fun with it I mean yes it's not the perfect adaptation yes we'd all do things differently you know I agree with lots of people's criticisms but at the same time I went into it a bit like happy smelly with an open mind you know I wasn't worried about what I was going to see and it was fine I enjoyed it I find it very rewatchable and you know I'll certainly get it on uh, Blu-ray and it's fine for what we got and we've got to remember it's a very low budget film by today's standards it was made at the height of the pandemic and you know he has tried to cram two games into one 100 minute film so i'd say yeah it feels a bit flat but it's perfectly fine for what it is six and a half out of ten for me as well okay um rombie i mean i'm on the same page bits of it flat some character decisions i would go with a completely different idea obviously we were talking about a different setup but for the movie we've got i mean i enjoyed it it was fun it's relatively somewhat forgettable i don't know how it'll appeal to an average person who doesn't know much about the franchise but they'll probably still be entertained and some zombies got burnt and there's at least a couple of funny scenes and an explosion at the end and smash cut to credits so you know i'd say yeah six out of ten stars tyrant to finish us off I'm going to echo what a YouTube reviewer of, of the movie said, which was, you know, when the, the time of the early rumours that there was going to be a Resident Evil movie occurred were when the series was very much, you know, in its infancy on the PlayStation 1 and things like that. So the idea of seeing, you know, the RPD or the mansion in you know, lifelike in, you know, environments and, you know, real life, if you like, was really appealing. And I just think like production values in video games have got to a point where like, if I really want to see what a movie version of RE2 is going to be, RE2 Remake exists. So I just find with that, the movie was astonishingly devoid of ambition, drive, Anything that resembled a decent script, I think the actors were totally let down. I didn't have an awful time with it, but I certainly didn't have a good time with it either. I'm going to really shoot low. It's a, it's a four. It's a four out of ten from yeah. Sean. It's, um, I feel nothing I... toward it whatsoever. I summed it up last time to you, Nick. I shrugged and I moved on. And that's it. That's how I feel. I've thought literally nothing about it apart from the thoughts I've had to sort of conjure to be able to do this podcast that's it i think you've made a good point too in the in a, in a roundabout way that had this movie been this movie 22 mm. years ago something like that it would be probably accepted a lot differently than it is now yeah it would be a very different reaction and a different probably even a different movie really in a lot of ways well there we go that does finish our discussion on welcome to raccoon city we hope you've all enjoyed it any other comments feedback please give us a shout but with that we now turn our attention to this podcast edition of neptune's biohazard quiz 25 years of resident evil 10 years of the resident evil podcast expert knowledge is needed in what we call the quiz this is my only opportunity for a point this week. 
Uh, I just like to announce everybody that uh, this is zero points for me this week. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. We've talked about the games straying too far from the origins. This Resident Evil quiz. We're now getting Spice Girls as the correct answer. I mean, it's time to quit. Welcome to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Jesus what? Christ! <laughs> what a fucking question, is that? Batman! Star Tyrant! George Trevor! Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Hello and welcome to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. We've got five, wait, scratch that, potentially six questions this week. Two of which are all on Welcome to Raccoon City. The other three or four are on alternative topics. So if everyone can clear their desktop, how well have you been paying attention? So question number one, which two stars members head up to the Spencer Mansion first in the movie? I didn't get this when I first watched it. I was unaware of that, who they were, so uh, hopefully everyone else did pick up on the two stars members. Question number two, what is the exact quote by Birkin when he refuses to give Wesker the G-Virus? I picked this question because obviously there's been a number of different ways this has been said over the years. That's it for your kind of movie question. So question number three comes in from Jordan Osiris. What company is inscribed on the harpoon gun that you used to fight the Del Lago in Resident Evil 4 VR edition? Oh my god, that's a veto question, wow. I've not played it. <laughs> Does everyone want a clue? Yes. Yes, okay, so it's something whaling company, and that something is a town slash city. A very uh, insidious question from Jordan. Question number four comes from Vito. Uh, in Resident Evil Village and the observation note file, who is described as being unstable and overly alert at times? Question number five is another question from Jordan. What is the name of the captain of the LNG Annabelle? Okay, we have a bonus question, but we're going to come back to it after this. It's You might want to get a fire extinguisher. Welcome back to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Let's see how well everyone has done. So question number one was, which two stars members first head to the Spencer Mansion in the movie? George Trevor, we'll start with you. Sorry, the first name that came to mind was Richard Aitken. So I'm thinking Richard and Chris, possibly. Chris and Richard. Okay, stars turn. Um, it's a bit of a trick question, this. It's Marini and Dooley, but it's debatable whether Dooley's even a stars member, isn't it? So. Okay, Batman. Yeah, it's Kevin Dooley and Enrico Marini. But again, it's they both just wear RPD jackets rather than stars uniforms, but then Irons does call them Bravo team, so yeah, it's a bit weird. But yeah, Kevin and Enrico. Robbie? Uh, I couldn't remember the names, but I remember the same thought that John's just mentioned about them being cops, but calling them Bravo team. So. Do we actually see them, or is it just mentioned in the narrative before? No, they're, they're, they're the ones <laughs> yeah. that taunt Leon in the restaurant. Didn't you watch this yesterday? You know, yeah. 
I did watch it yesterday. <laughs> they tell everybody in the restaurant to go. I no, 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 no. I mean, do we actually see them literally approach the mansion? That's what I mean. I thought the first shot of the mansion was when we saw... You no, know, you just find the truck. We don't actually see them walk up to the mansion. But, no, yeah, no. The right. next time you see them was with the head turner. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Points there to Star Star and, and Batman. No, well remembered. That was a good answer, yeah. So this should be fun. So what's the exact quote by Birkin when he refuses to give Wesker the G-virus, Batman? Something like, this is my life's work, I'm not handing it over to anyone. It's the same as the game, isn't it? This is my life's work, I'm not handing it over to anyone. Okay. Rombi. No, I had very similar, it's my life's work, I'm not handing it over to you. I think I'm not handing it over to you. Okay, Stars Tyrant. I think I've blurred OG2. Uh, you think I'm going to hand over my life's work is what I got. Okay. George Trevor. He seems less intense than Birkin in the games. He almost sort of like, he's quite calm and he says, this is my life's work. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm not just going to give it to you. I don't think he says to anyone. I'm pretty sure he says to you. Oh, it's all very close. The exact line is, this is my life's work. I'm not giving it to anybody. Not to anybody. Um... Come on, Nick. I think, yeah, I think Batman, you get the point. Romby gets the point. I think that's it. Yeah, Sean, you're a bit too out. That's fair. No, I agree. Yeah, yeah. There we go. So question number three then came in from Jordan. Which, which company is inscribed on the harpoon gun? That's exclusive yeah. to Resident Evil 4 VR, uh, by the way. So uh, I gave the clue. It's something whaling company. So what's your town or city? It's not town. Actually, no, I haven't played it. I haven't got around to playing it for a few weeks now. I knew it was whaling company. I just remember that. There's a random guess. Seattle whaling company. Seattle whaling company. Okay, Romby. Boston. I have no idea. State Boston whaling company. George Trevor. I was going to go with the George Trevor connection, say New York. Sometimes New York's mentioned in, in it Resident is. Evil. Yeah, New York. New York Whaling Company. Okay, Batman. Um, I've gone for San Diego Whaling Company. San Diego. One of you is right, Ooh. believe it or not. It's New Boston Whaling Company. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> well done, Rumby. Well done, sir. That's a Very complete good. stab in the dark. <laughs> I'm going to take that point. <laughs> It's a very good rework of the battle, though. It's interesting. It is a, a very I've well I've seen the footage. Was cool way of doing it. Question number four came in from Vito and the observation note file from Village, who is described as being unstable, uh, overtly alert at times. Batman. I'm going to guess it's Ingrid, the maiden. Oh, okay. George? I don't know. I'm trying to think just in terms of the character description. Was it unstable? What was it again? Overly alert at times. Overly alert, but unstable. This sounds like me. Um, I'm going to say Lady D. I've said some, yeah, I don't know. I'm obsessed with Lady D at the moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My son's laughing in the background. He doesn't have, you can't hear what's on the other. No, not for that reason, Jacob. <laughs> I have no idea. I have a remembrance of the, the candidates thing, and then I couldn't tell you which one it was, but I definitely know it was in that file. That's the only thing I remember. <laughs> I had no idea. I just put Mia. Points to Batman, it is Ingrid. Well done, well done. Yes, the maiden herself. Well done. So question number five then, also from Jordan. Who is the captain of the LNG Annabelle? This is in a file. You'd have had to have known quite well. I'm going to guess Batman may know this. Star Starrant, did you know? Nope. Nope. Rumby, did you know? No, I can't remember. I, re- I remember there being a captain mentioned in a file, but I cannot remember the name. George Trevor? No, I've no, no idea, no. Jordan, I think you've outdone everyone here, but Batman, do you know this one? I do, and I only know it because it's named after Cumbria's only city. I'm, I'm sure he's Ed Carlisle. <laughs> it is Ed Carlisle. It's fucking <laughs> ridiculous, honestly. How does he get them, man? <laughs> 
what, what a name Ed Carlisle is. Fucking hell. Captain Ed Carlisle. Ed Carlisle, I love that. Very good, very good. So let's have a look at those scores. As they stand, Batman with a, a very impressive four out of five. George Trevor yet to score, Rob with two, stars Tyrant with one. But we have a bonus question. Oh, yes. Question number uh, six is worth three points, I've decided. And what this is going to be is a bit reminiscent of Biohazard Stars. So there's three points up for grabs. If you know the answer, just buzz in to shout your name. If you're right, you'll get the points. If you're not, you're out. I am a B.O.W. and I am born from a much larger B.O.W. I tend to reside in dark, cold places with very little light. I have the ability to fly. I can detect prey and will alert another B.O.W. to its presence. I have a moth or a bat-like appearance. George Trevor, I know I'm wrong. Is it the Glasp? Because it's not, I don't know, it's born of something else. Glasp is incorrect. You are out, George Trevor. We're running out of clues. Uh, my name is derived from the word I. Oh, is it those friggin' flying things in RE6? I can't remember the name of that. Summon us to neck. I am in Resident Evil 6. It's the final clue. <laughs> I don't know the names of the RE6 BOW. This is a JC Wesker question, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know the name. I think half point at least going to stars. He has got it correct in the sense of that is the thing. Uh, Rob or Batman, do we know the name of this BOW? Nah, no clue. (laughs) I can't remember. The names of those are the terrible ones that I can't remember. Apologies to those of the language, but there's so many of them. There is, there is. Batman, did you know this one? I don't know the name off the top of my head, I'm afraid. Ah, it's Oko. 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 They're the little things that... That actually makes of. way more sense. Like. Yeah. So no real changes to the scores there. Uh, <laughs> a waste of time, by all accounts, but there we go. So congratulations to Batman with a very impressive four out of five. Join us next time and we'll have some more questions. So thank you very much for uh, everyone listening there. That concludes our uh, podcast discussing Welcome to Raccoon City. Quite an eventful podcast, I'm sure you'll all agree. What's next? Well, we've teased it before in the Best Bits podcast, but episode 75 is going to be our 10-year anniversary special. We're going to be looking back at the last 10 years of the Resident Evil podcast, as well as the last 10 years of the Resident Evil franchise as well. Our podcast obviously came out in 2012, and in that time, there's been many, many releases, and the state of the franchise has changed enormously cast your minds back in 2012 we had operation raccoon city uh, resident evil 6 damnation and revelations 1 all being released in that 12 month window the series is very different now is that good or is that bad has the series reinvented itself they're the type of discussions we're going to look back on so everything that's happened in the last 10 years as well as a couple of reminiscing moments of uh, of the podcast as well we think everyone should enjoy it. It should be a nice little way to kind of start off the year of 2022. So keep your eyes open for that. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. It's goodbye from me, Neptune. Goodbye from me, Batman. Goodbye from me, Stars Tyrant. Goodbye from me, George Trevor. And goodbye from me, Robbie.
Whatever that means.